0: A pilot a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey back in Alaska and traveled with portable speakers playing Bob's I Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I million wish I had a million problems that way I couldn't pinpoint all of a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian, late night sitcom syndicated on TV Land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help us ride like, like, I wish, I
1: wish. Every time we love and it feels just like this. Like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. Like this. Like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we love and it feels just Hello.
2: like this. Cats and kittens, guys and dolls. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and I am really excited to talk about this one today. On this week's Bad Faith, today's free episode of Bad Faith Podcast, I spoke to the author of the uh, viral New York Times article from Monday. She is a UVA student who wrote questioning whether there's a culture of self-censorship that is undermining what we hope to get from the college experience and having broader implications in our society. The article is called, I came to college either to debate. I found self-censorship instead. Her name is Emma Camp. I know you guys had a lot of thoughts and feelings about this. I want to set the stage for us a little bit, not just as we do sometimes by playing a clip, but also by reading a little bit of this into the record. The article starts Charlottesville, Virginia. Each week. I seek out the office hours of a philosophy department professor willing to discuss with me a comp, uh, with me complex ethical questions raised by her course on gender and sexuality. We keep our voices low as if someone might overhear us. Hushed voices and anxious looks dictate so many conversations on campus here at uni- the University of Virginia where I'm finishing up my senior year. A friend lowers her voice to lament the ostracizing of a student who says something well-meaning but mildly offensive during a student club's diversity training. Another friend shuts his bedroom door when I mention a lecture defending Thomas Jefferson from contemporary criticism. His roommate might hear us, he explains. I went to college to learn from my professors and peers. I welcomed an environment that champions intellectual diversity and rigorous disagreement. Instead, my college experience has been defined by strict ideological conformity. Students of all political persuasions hold back, in class discussions, in friendly conversations, and on social media, from saying what we really think. Even as a liberal who has attended abortion rights demonstrations and written about standing up to racism, I sometimes feel afraid to fully speak my mind. I went on, you know, this happened. Everyone was big mad. I saw a lot of my friends and colleagues voicing their frustrations that, these kinds of conversations always seem to be framed as a defense of conservatives, et cetera. So I was kind of surprised when I went and read the article and I saw that she self describes, self identifies as a liberal. I read through it. And my critique was more that it was so vague. as to not be able to tell what one should think. And, I, and similarly, and I, as I said in the episode, I felt as though the Harper's letter was a Rorschach test where it announced these principles that were so broad that you can get someone like Noam Chomsky signing it and also, you know, Barry Weiss or whatever signing it. And that frustration with these conversations is often that nobody will say the thing that they say that they won't say. So I'm hoping that we will be able to have some frank, honest conversations the way we do here on the debrief today. Uh, Let's start by taking a few questions and then we'll play a clip from the episode. Clifford, you're up first. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind.
3: Hey, Brianna, how are you?
2: I'm doing well. How are you, Cliff? Bird? Uh, oh, either one
3: fine. <laughs> Sorry, I, just did, I realized
2: that I didn't have permission to call you that. but
3: No, you have permission. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed the episode. I agree with your critique as far as how much substance there was really to engage with. I still enjoyed the discourse and I still enjoyed the episode. And I don't have a whole lot to add, I'll be honest, although I would love to have a discussion about it. But I was just going to I'm using this time if I might. And I won't change subjects without your permission, but I was just going to inquire if uh, by any chance you had seen either the Patreon message I send you or the email I send you regarding um, uh, topics of civil disruption of the 1%. And like I sent an author and a uh, spokesperson for... Extinction Rebellion, Um, and I was just curious if you saw either of those emails. I
2: haven't. um, Okay, but that flags me. I I gotta let me. This is a good time for me to say that I basically stopped checking everything or even looking at Patreon comments. I would really love to be engaging with you guys, but honestly, sometimes the bad faith level of response, right, right, and, and, and it's and it's overwhelmingly not that way, and it's overwhelmingly a great community. But I gotta say, just one piece of bullshit can really ruin my day. (laughs) And I just decided like I was slaving, slogging through emails when we first started the podcast for months and months, I was reading and responding and you guys would write me like these, uh, say things to me that were so personal. And I would, I would spend like 40 minutes replying to every email and it was so time consuming. And then it's like, also, I do all that work, and then you just shit on me the next day. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I don't have to do that. So I had to kind of divest from caring for my own mental health. But I will follow up in the inbox and look for your your email, Clifford.
3: Sure. And I I only say that just because I'm sure, like, I think the last time you told me send that along in an email, I think the next morning you had, like, Rising or something. So, like, and then uh day actually did me the favor of asking one time when I couldn't be on. So I'm just assuming that you were super busy, but if for some reason you read the email and you're like, I don't have time to respond to this or I don't like these as guests, I would just want to know just so I could find someone uh, else who might fit the bill better. That's all. But I know it's, it is a lot to ask. So I'll just keep checking on this. Okay. But, I'll uh, definitely check thank it. Thanks
2: for calling Clifford.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Okay. B. Uh what's on your mind? What did you think about the episode?
4: Hey Bree. Um, Wow, I'm so excited to be talking to you. First time caller, long time patron. Oh, welcome. Um, Thank you. Uh, One thing that really stood out to me from what Emma said was when she said we should be able to call out things as bad when they're obviously bad. Uh, I think she pointed out the practice of ritualistic suicide and you pointed out FGM. Um, If you'd allow me, I'll just use the example of veganism, uh, but this could really be applied to anything. The question that really stood out to me from that conversation was to what extent should culture dictate morality or the ability to offer critique. Mm. Uh, I do have an example. Uh, So uh, Earthling Ed is an activist and an animal rights um, YouTuber. He held a debate at the University of Dallas as to why students there weren't going vegan just yet. And he was operating um, through the I guess, the understanding that morality means ultimately to eliminate unnecessary suffering. So he was faced with some backlash by a a particular um, woman that he had debated or discussed with. And she sort of labelled the discussion uh, around veganism as anti-Indigenous and that the ideology ultimately came from a place of coloniser privilege, uh, despite the fact that he was actually uh, posing the question to her and was very clear that it's not a question posed to, for example, Inuit's um, so mm. he, he basically said that she was using, she was appropriating Indigenous cultu- culture to justify arbitrarily harming animals. Mm-hmm. Um, re- somebody responded, his name is Soytheist. He's a great YouTuber and he's Indigenous himself from a highly marginalised community in India. And he actually claimed, which I thought was really interesting, I'd love your take, is that this type of ideology that she was using actually... Um, uh, that approach holds Indigenous people to a lower form of moral standard and that it's a form of soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, Sort of like it's the assumption that they can't reach a moral standard that everybody else is capable of. And he points out the genetic fallacy of judging something, um, not judging the merit of the argument, but rather who's making the argument. Uh, and I would just love, love to hear your take on that. And, and I guess I, I feel it relates, but if you feel it's too much of a off-the-rail off convo, that's absolutely fine.
2: No, that's spot on. That's so interesting. So I don't think it's holding a, a culture to a lower moral standard to acknowledge the reality that if you live in a frozen tundra <laughs> without a lot of fruits and vegetables around and you have for hundreds, thousands of years subsisted on a native diet, which is heavily animal-based, that is a higher lift for you to go vegan than someone living in New York City with a lot of disposable income who can pop down to Whole Foods every other day. You know, that's just reality. Um, and I, I, the, the the difference between kind of like the soft bigotry of cultural low expectations and acknowledging that people are coming from different places and like sometimes different informational levels. It's a tricky conversation to have. You know, we talked on the podcast about Jesse waters framing voting rights, uh, voting ID issues as you know, black, you know, if you frame it as black people are too stupid to get IDs, then you 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 frame it that way to black voters on the street, then they're going to like bristle and be like, of course I have an ID. And of course most people have IDs. The issue of voter ID is like very much on the margins of, communities or people who are like, you know, um, disenfranchised in other overlapping ways. But it, I think it is important, you know, that, that is, I think gets to the bottom of your point about like, what are you engaging with someone in bad faith or not? Like Jesse waters is no friend to black people. You know, he's no friend to, you know, democracy's interests. And yet if we don't have a more fulsome framing of and a better understanding of why it is that some of these laws that imperil our access to democracy are actually a problem. We can fall into the trap of sounding like we are the ones that are being, you know, the liberals left leftists are the ones that are being racist in the same way that your, your friends kind of flip this issue back and forth around these indigenous rights. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. I mean, I I think it is both true that it's obviously harder for someone, you know, who is low income or who lives in a not, you know, an, an icy area where it's hard to grow, um, Plant based stuff, it's harder for them to do X, Y, and Z. We also live in a society where, if we really decided as an earth, as a global community, that it was a um, moral like tragedy for any single animal to be killed, then we would mobilize. We would have like a World War II level mobilization to make sure that we are shipping fresh produce wherever it needs to go so that people can be vegan free. Free, you know, free, uh, cost free anywhere in the world. But we haven't collectively made those decisions because I think most of us are still in a very ambiguously moral place about how we feel about animal consumption and are nowhere near getting to a place where we say, not only do we believe that we should all not consume animals, we also think that we should invest our own resources so that everyone in the world has the same opportunity to access vegan food.
4: Yeah, no, I I get you. I I think also, I think that the steering away from the, the veganism example, it's more so I think maybe the example of this woman sort of being offended on the behalf of somebody else. Mm. Um, and then ultimately, with cancel culture, um, I guess this is a different question. But what is what is the ultimate goal? I think is it? Is it to silence someone? Is it to change their perspective? And the thing with cancel culture, sometimes is it's almost feels endless when you're having to pay for something endlessly. Uh, is that the ultimate goal? Or uh, why is why isn't the grace allowed for people to sort of recognize they've done wrong, do better. And then why are they sort of, it almost seems like they're held to that punishment for, for eternity, but that's a, that's a different question. (laughs) Uh, But thank you so much for your insight.
2: Oh yeah, of course. No, I think that's, these are such good points. I think that, and I've talked about this before, a huge part of, The problem with cancel culture, you know, there's so many people who are like cancel culture isn't real because people are just worried about getting criticized. Okay, there's that's an element to it. But also, if you're getting criticized endlessly and treated as kind of like or, or characterized as being kind of beyond the reach of being socially appropriate, like we can't really associate with you anymore, interminably then that raises the stakes in a way that it's not like you're just mad at me because, you know, in a a normal course of interaction, people say things they piss you off, you're mad at your friend for a day or a week or a month, but then it's over. (laughs) You know, or they are able to apologize and you get past it. But I've said this before, because we don't have any kind of restorative justice, we don't have any sort of understanding of what uh, penance looks like or what a sincere apology looks like, we haven't mapped out as a society what we – what it would take to reintegrate people in our society, whether they've done something bigger but done something small, absent like serving a jail sentence and then coming out of jail, things that are subcriminal, we have no language for how to bring people back in. And that makes people who are very frustrated that people have gotten off the hook historically, whether it's like me too and men who get away with murder. It's like, well then we'll have to sanction them forever socially because the law isn't doing its job. But that is, that gets you into this weird place where, of course, nobody wants to admit to anything, nobody wants to have open conversations, nobody wants to perhaps apologize for something that they've done wrong, even in a Me Too context, because it, if you're going to be stuck with that forever, you might as well fight to the death for the possibility that you might not have the accusation stick to you in the first instance, right? Which doesn't seem to be to be meeting our rehabilitative goals. And think the other part of it is that you – there is a virtue that the accuser gets, that the, the the aggrieved person gets for the duration of the ostracization. Right? So there's like this weird, unhealthy relationship between me continuing to feel righteous and virtuous, perhaps rightly so. I don't mean that as a value judgment, but there's a relationship to how virtuous and righteous you are feeling and how condemned the other person is. And so there's like an investment in not letting the other person rehabilitate themselves or demonstrate penance or anything like that. And I think that is unhealthy.
4: Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Th- thank you so much, Brie. Um, it is something I struggle with myself. You're right, it's quite, quite difficult to get to the bottom of, but uh, I really enjoyed your response and I'm looking forward to the rest of the convo.
2: Thank you, B. I'm, I'm so happy that you chose to call in today. Thank you. Husha,
5: what's crack a Hello, Brie. Uh, Aladis. Thank you so much for having me back on.
2: Of course. What's on your mind?
5: So what's on my mind is, since a lot of this discussion was from a current college student, it made me reflect on my experiences in college. And generally speaking, I'm never one to be hesitant, at least in the past few years, I've not been one to be hesitant to uh, raise my opinions and challenges to anyone, whether those are my professors, my friends, people on call in people like Justin Amash or Glenn Greenwald, Aaron Matte, even yourself. I don't mind at all. I try to do it like yourself as respectfully and politely as possible, but I don't hesitate to do so. And what comes to mind for me is my college experience with one of my professors, Alan Ross. He taught me two classes, Legal Aspects of Management through the business school, and uh, Ethics, Social, Political, and Ethical Environment of Business through the business school as well. And... He teaches a political science class at Berkeley, which is one of the few classes at the university, which is very open to people from all around the political spectrum coming in and sharing their thoughts. And he invites guest speakers in every semester, um, every week of every semester in the fall and the spring. And it's one of the most popular political science classes in the in the nation. Um, he's been teaching it for over 40 years. And uh, He's had all sorts of people. He's had Gavin Newsom, I think, at least eight times, Kamala Harris, Danny Glover, Paul Krugman, Cesar Chavez. He brings right-wingers on there as well. Um, and uh, there was one journalist for who came at least 27 or 28 t- years in a row, Charles Wiley, I believe is his name. And if you're interested, uh, Brianna, I could definitely set you up to speak in his class. Uh, this fall uh, semester, is gonna, the theme is going to be domestic politics. Which well, but is,
2: Kusha, Kusha, what's Kusha, um, what's, the, what's the question... Or what, what is it about him and these conversations that is germane to the subject of the, of the episode sure.
5: today? I just wanted to extend that invitation for you first. I mean, you can reject it if you'd like, but I wanted to offer you that. So what I wanted to say about this is that's one professor that I had seen as an example of someone who's very open-minded. Um, and, for instance, since I challenged him a lot, he's open to making uh, very robust discussions. We ch- uh, chat all the time. Now, in contrast, I wanted to raise this professor and ask you about your thoughts. Uh, Her name is Christina Banks. She was a board director at Whole Foods. She taught me management of human resources at the business school. And I remember in the spring of 2020, when it was the Bernie Sanders campaign and Bernie was still up, I asked her about Joe Biden because she was one of the few people I had seen in Berkeley who was an ardent Joe Biden supporter. Mm
6: -hmm. And I had
5: raised to her about Biden's record in the Iraq war. And she said, well, Bernie's just a dove. The only reason why the only reason he d- didn't vote for it is because he's a dove, which is not true. If you know Bernie Sanders' record, you know he supported the Afghan war, the authorization for the use of military force in 2001. You know he supported the war in Yugoslavia. So it's not true in that sense. But he knew that the lies of, behind, from Bush and Cheney about Iraq war were just so immense, and he didn't fall for them. Even Ron Paul didn't fall for them. And then when I started asking her about Bernie's record, you talked about how, like for instance, the accuser can get this benefit That just um, in a sense of righteous indignation um, when you make such a a charge. I remember she was saying that Bernie Sanders is a misogynist and it was just so ridiculous to Mm -hmm. me coming from someone who supported Biden. And I asked her and it was a student next to me. I said, what about all what about Tara Reid? And she and she said, oh, well, I heard Tara Reid is a Russian expert. I said, what about (sighs) all those kids? I swear on on my mom, I swear she said that. And, uh, on a di- and then that's when a New York Times article came like a month or so after when we made the switch to a virtual learning environment. She said, oh, you know, the article The article was something like, Joe Biden did assault Tara read, I'm still going to vote for him anyway, if you saw the article. It was a pretty famous Yeah, one. I remember that.
7: Mm-hmm. So
5: I'm curious about your thoughts on how, because I've never been afraid to challenge my professors, at least in, in my junior and senior year. Um, in high school, I was the same way throughout. Freshman, sophomore year, I was a little more hesitant to do so. But I've never been afraid to challenge my professors. Do you think it's worthwhile for students to do so in fear of their grades being affected? Because I never minded. Because, you know, professors have some say subjectively in some areas of your grading, unless it's all like a math class or something or just a physics class. I
2: mean, I can't say that I ever was concerned about my grades. Um, For one, so many classes, you're being rewarded for participation. And I never got the sense that the valence of the participation was the issue. It was about being kind of, just knowledgeable and having read the book and like being willing to think and especially in college, but also like I didn't feel like I was in situations in college where I was so out of step with anybody else. Generally speaking in law school, I felt aggressively out of step with people. I think, you know, I was older and just more political and the world was different. However, it's the grades are all based on your final exam and it's, um, anonymous anonymously graded. So I'd never even crossed my mind um, that I would be penalized to be truthful.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I don't know what other people's scenarios are and whether that is a real thing that is happening. I know that there was some allusion to it in um, Emma's article and it linked to some fair data, but it was like a lot of numbers on a chart that I didn't have time to like try to disaggregate and figure out. Uh, so I, that's, I, there's neither here nor there. Um, so, yeah, uh, what, what was the question?
5: If I want to just conclude on this. So you you were talking about like your law school experience and what it was like, you know, testing and, and your relationships with the professors. Mm-hmm. I, I, I take it you weren't like an Alan Dershowitz class at Harvard Law. I don't even know if he was still teaching while you were there. No. Or what. And by, I want to give you an example. Say you were in like John Hughes class who wrote the torture memos for the Bush administration.
2: Oh, yeah, he came to speak. <laughs> I took a I took a class where he spoke once.
5: Would you challenge him? Did you challenge him while you were there? If you had him as a student for a semester, would you no, challenge him? No, I didn't
2: know what I was talking about. I didn't
5: know, no, I, I didn't know anything about true. anything. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm saying that you now, if you were the same Brian Joy Gray as you are at this moment in his class.
2: Oh, yeah, you- totally. No issue at all. It would be no issue. First, I mean, I would probably wouldn't take his class. Uh, but if I did, you know, you only have so many semesters in law school. It's only three years. You only get a few bites of the apple. So I probably wouldn't waste my time in there. But I definitely took a class from um, – oof, it wasn't from, but he did like a guest lecture series or something from, what was that guy's name? He, he was like, he was one of the like, uh, like a kind of, you know, we have never Trump Republicans now. He was like an anti Bush Republican type who everyone was kind of fawning (laughs) over, but who I saw as like only marginally better than the alternative. I wish I could remember this guy's name. And so in that class, again, my not speaking up then as now usually has more to do with me not feeling informed enough to make a case like Sometimes mm-hmm. you guys are like, oh, why didn't you say the X, Y, Z? Because, like, guys, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Like, you don't <laughs> want me to make your argument sound dumb because I'm engaging with someone who is much more knowledgeable than I am. And then I get throttled. Like, give me time to learn. I so that. That, that's usually that's usually why I wouldn't speak up. Today, and like even, even in law school, I don't know. This is going to sound really glib and perhaps self-aggrandizing or something. But I when I do have an opinion— when I have a strong opinion, I, I have thought it through. <laughs> I have thought it through, and I am not nervous about going to battle, especially, like, in a classroom. This isn't even on, like, TV or anything where yeah, anybody can see yeah. it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I'm not expecting everyone to feel that way. And, and Emma was saying that she also personally feels perfectly comfortable speaking up most of the time. And that more she's she's more so advocating for other people who don't feel that way. But that's why I was asking her, like, should should is this a really an issue, like some kind of like infrastructural issue that we need to solve or a cultural issue we need to solve? Or is this about like helping kids, young people, everyone feel empowered to just say what they need? Just say it like you need to say it.
5: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of your better qualities, Brianna. For me, I have perspective because my dad was supposed to be killed. For his thoughts mm. in he was in a deemed an apostate he was beaten in the street by proto paramilitary actors he was tried in a sham trial by an islamic mm. leg my mom was supposed to be whipped tens of times over a hundred mm. plus times my uh uncle was tortured by islamic republic after he deserted during the iran iraq war uh i just saw one of my dad's friends like a week or two ago he was in prison for eight years for distributing pamphlets another mm. friend of his that i would known since childhood used to play with me when i was a kid he was also in eight years with the other guy and so, like, this has always been my perspective, like, just chatting with people, even if they're in bad faith, or what have you, it doesn't, it doesn't irk me. It, it, it's, it's not, you know, I'm not intimidated by it as much, you know, versus yeah. like the, some of the most serious threats can, that can be on one's life. Uh, that's how I come about it. Obviously, not everyone's raised around that environment yeah. where their perspective can be shaped as such. But of course, you can meet people and befriend people who've been through that. And it rubs off on you, that type of, courage and that type of conviction.
2: Yeah, I will just, say, like, mm-hmm. I think that's such a good point, And that perspective is real. It is also true, though. I want to, I want to give voice to the reality though, that even if you're not fearing that kind of um, persecution, that level of persecution that you're describing, I will say that there are times when I don't choose to fight because I'm tired and I don't mm-hmm. feel like it. Let me sense. So, and so that's what I was talking about a little bit in the Stephanie Gray's context. It was like, I don't want to have to do this right now and feeling resentful that I am in a position where if I don't say something, then, you know, it's a national media story. All of these lies are being told mm-hmm. about the black student organization. Like, you know, it's a lose, lose situation.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: And some, I was also saying, said this to Emma, it's like sometimes if people aren't speaking, cause they just don't feel emotionally up to having a fight, that's a perfectly valid choice to make, but that's your fault. I mean, like that's on you. Like, that's not cancel culture. That's you deciding, oh, I got to wake up early tomorrow. I don't want this smoke. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I don't want my emotional energy to be here or there. Like, and it's, it's this way when I feel like I there, there are issues that I know I'm not knowledgeable about. I am not mm-hmm. members of communities. I know that I have more exposure. So let's say, like, trans issues or some of the, you know, Jewish issues that I caught flack for last month. It's like sometimes I choose to put a toe in because I'm like, okay, I, I'm pretty – I feel pretty good about how I feel. And plus I think that there's some value in having these conversations, even if they're thorny. And if I know that people are going to be mad and that's legitimate. And if people want to be mad or want to unsubscribe or not listen to my show, like that is a risk I'm willing to take to have the conversation that I think needs to be had.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: And so there's a part of me that says the fact that I'm even making that kind of evaluation is maybe, oh, there is some, so, something to this cancel culture thing that's silencing. The fact that I go ahead and do it some percentage of the time suggests to me, okay, well, it's not so stifling as to actually be a problem.
5: Yeah, please keep that up because many on Twitter were very unfair to you about the conversation you raised about uh, Jewish people. And uh, I think that it was very worthwhile, uh, even though you got much bad faith critiques about it. Please just don't stop. Please. please
2: Well, I appreciate that. And the thing is, it's like what I've discovered, and I was just saying this to a friend who's dealing with this issue in a political context there's no reasoning with people making bad faith attacks. You know, if someone wants to say Bernie Sanders is a sexist, you know, if somebody wants to say he's like a Putin puppet <laughs> or whatever, like at a certain point, you just he cannot did. give your My emotional energy. Yeah. Like you, you just can't give month, your – A
5: month in advance, he knew about Putin's interventions and he didn't do anything. But please go on.
2: Yeah. You just can't do anything about that. And at a certain point, it's not wise for you to waste your emotional energy refuting that stuff. Um, so at some you gotta like say something performa like okay yes I believe in equality or what you, you gotta say the <laughs> thing I, like that's obviously true I mean like it's it's, it's almost insulting to have to say because it it's like you know the the apocryphal example of you know the debate so you say why do you beat your wife and you have just been half the debate explaining yeah. that you don't beat your wife but all anybody's yeah. thinking about now is you beating your wife yeah, you know exactly. you or gotta like be careful. Having
5: sexual relations with pigs have you ever heard that one? yes the, the yes story... yeah that's the famous political campaign as you were yes
2: like you, but so you, you don't want to step into that kind of a trap but at the same time it's like what i've realized is that everyone who wants to everyone who thinks badly of me already is going to believe the bad thing everybody who likes me knows better to believe the thing and it's just not worth it and the person who keeps lo- lobbying the insult is ultimately losing their credibility over time because, you know, with the group that I care about, the people who are already kind of in zapatica with me and you know, there's just, it's not, there's no point in wasting energy. So I, I also do want to tease out like, is it cancel culture? Are you making a rational judgment based on your time, your energy levels, what's going on in your life? The fact that maybe you aren't very well informed or you're not that sure about your opinion. So you don't want to mm-hmm. risk having like an mm-hmm. extremely tense conversation for no reason when you're not even that committed to a belief.
7: Mm -hmm.
5: I I think the way that you parse out these elements is very important because I think oftentimes people may conflate uh, the variety coming together and feel it to be cancel culture. I think that like, if you take a look at someone Bernie Sanders always admires so much, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who Mm -hmm. of course needs to be critiqued for his internment of Japanese Americans. Mm -hmm. But, Franklin Roosevelt approached it with those fireside chats. I believe he did tens of them because he Mm -hmm. knew that the media was going to be hostile to him. And as you were describing with your own example, you said, like, look, people are going to be bad faith to me. accuse me of what was it beating your wife or, as I said, like having sexual relations with pigs. Roosevelt said, look, I need to create my own radio station. And just like you're doing as well, you need to create your own podcast. You need to have your own call in all. All I think left wing, progressively oriented people need to do such because. It, you know, when the mainstream media gives you a fair hearing, a fair trial, that's the more so the exception, I think, right now than it is the rule. At least it feels that way. And so yeah. I think the willingness to use all avenues possible to be able to um, appeal to your good faith um, base, of course, but also, I think there are so many people who just are they haven't heard you yet, and because the apparatus of the media is one that invents reality, as Michael Parenti put it, or as Chomsky and Edward Herman put it, manufactures uh, Manufacturer's Consent, one has to try to get their own media infrastructure. And we saw with Bernie Sanders when his, when he had that goofy, I love that show too, that 80s show, Bernie Speaks to the Community. Have you ever yeah. watched that on YouTube? He was doing exactly that yeah. with that little mini microphone as well.
2: He knew the same well, the, thing. Well, the thing about that too is sometimes, and this is what people don't get about Joe Rogan, I gave an interviewed some journalist yesterday about this I'm not sure if the article is posted he's writing about Joe Rogan and the political appeal of him and you know why um, and should politicians go on Joe Rogan which I think is the most hilarious question it's like okay so you just you just told me in the lead up to this question that this is the most popular podcast in America and 11 unique (laughs)
7: listeners
2: tune in every episode and you're asking me to explain to you why politicians have an interest in going on this show like I don't like, but I don't understand. Like, are you really asking me this? <laughs> um, but the thing about Rogan that I think so many Rogan detractors don't understand, like love him or hate him. The appeal is that he's willing to talk about anything with anyone. Mm-hmm. And you can say, oh, he has more right wing guests and left wing guests. OK, mm-hmm. but tell me another show that has had Kyle Kalinske and Ben Burgess and Bernie Chris Sanders and also, yeah, Crystal, of course. And also, you know, whomever it is he has on the right, I don't know those people. But, like, and also, like, Sanjay Gupta, libs, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, he's, I mean, he's, like, and, and, and I'll tell you this. When I'm booking shows, and I'm, I'm constantly, when I see friends of mine scrapping it up on the internet, my instinct is to say, come on Bad Faith together and we'll talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. There have been all of these articles written, right? Like, don't be a tanky. Did it, all these people were criticizing the left for like being too soft on Putin and all the response from the people who were being accused of tankies, you know, the Aaron Montes and stuff were like, tell me where I didn't say that Putin did an invasion. Tell me that I didn't say that that oh, was Aaron Mate wrong. Is not a
5: good example because he's been running away from me. Uh, that, that's an example. Well, I can,
2: I'm not going to get into your personal dispute. Like, I don't know anything about it. And that's not really what the, the, what's germane here. But, that but was what, exactly what, but guess, what so. I'm saying is that I, if I reach out to Aaron Monte and the person who writes the don't be a tankie article. Nine times out of ten, the more quote-unquote radical person, the leftist person, is willing to come and talk about it. Glenn is always willing to down and to come on. The more centrist liberal person doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to just confront. Like, if you're accusing someone of being pro-Putin, no worries. Come on the show. Say the thing that is allegedly pro-Putin and let the person respond, and we'll find out if they're pro-Putin or not. What's the the big deal?
5: That's the most fair thing. I agree. Greenwald is open-minded to it. He's invited me back. Mate used to be open to it, but then after I started challenging much and more and more of his well, fans, his, his quotes, he's – I really to don't it.
2: want to bring in your interpersonal disputes with people from other shows because I haven't heard them and I can't litigate them and I don't want – I don't. Want, that's why I like to have both people on the shows at the same time so that we can have I a conversation and it's not one person just – leveraging claims against the other without the ability to dispute. And since I also am not privy to this, I also don't want to litigate any of that here, your personal disputes with other podcasters. I think that you can understand that. But the point I'm trying to make, the point I'm trying to make is that when Glenn and Nathan came on, I love Glenn and Nathan, you know, and Nate, you know, there are points that I think Nathan made strongly about the ways that Glenn could be pushed back more when he goes on Fox news. I also fully agree and support Glenn going on Fox news for the same reason. I think it's ridiculous to question why anybody would want to get Joe Rogan's platform. So like I I, might, my, the broader point I'm making though is that it's often the person who's making the accusation. The lib- more liberal, moderate, conservative person who's making the accusation about the other person who is unwilling to actually defend their li- beliefs in real time. And I'm le- I learn a lot about who is able to actually substantiate their worldview by who is willing to come on the podcast and talk. And you guys wouldn't believe how many people I reach out to every week who decline to engage directly with the people that they've criticized in print. Oh, so believe- I'll leave that at that. But thank you, Kusha. We've been together a long to- on a long time, but I'm going to get through some of these callers.
5: Always a joy. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a okay. great okay. rest of your day.
2: You too. Case, what's on your mind?
1: Hey, what's going on, Bree?
2: Not much. What's on your mind today?
1: Yeah, so, man, I'm just enjoying the show so far. (laughs) And um, just to let you know, me and my man Dave, my man Dave, we always DM each other while this stuff is going, while you you guys are chatting um, and the show is going on. And I hope you don't mind. We're going to do like a reunion show. Right. One of these days, it might be a one show on my channel and we just going to comment on certain things that go down <laughs> in your show. And we are just going to have a good old time. But anyway, back to this topic. And, and it's out of love, of course, it's not to disrespect you or the show. But um, anyway, back to this, the topic at hand, mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll be honest with you. I just woke up. I don't know exactly what I, I saw the topic and I was like, I want to talk to Brie today, but. Let me think of some a good question so I come in the queue and I can ask a good question. I asked Dave. He gave you a very intellectual question. I said, this is too complex. I need something simple. So I thought of a simple question for this topic. And my question is, when I was in um, college, I uh, graduated back in 2005. I don't really, you know, the term cancel culture was not even invented yet. And mm. I, I'm trying to think of that if it was even a thing. Like, to me cancel culture is a uh media creation it was something just like you know almost like crt where the republicans throw a whole bunch of stuff at the wall to find out what sticks and then when crt sticks that's when they all go and run with it like um this cancel culture i don't even know exactly when it became a thing but it just blew up and then everybody's applying it to certain situations and in this case it's college cancel culture and i'm like listen to you know you and the, the guests uh, and everybody and it's like it sounds like you are on college you might say something that people don't like and then they bring you to the front of the congregation and they deem you canceled therefore you can't talk to anybody like you go walk on campus and you can't talk to anybody like and is that what's going on nowadays brie
2: I don't know what's going on nowadays because I graduated mm. just two years after you did. Um, <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Okay. But, okay yeah. Yeah. So let, uh, Let's uh, look
2: here. Let's just do this. We're going to uh, go here because I'm talking a big game about how I'm afraid I'm not afraid to say anything and yada, okay. yada, yada. Jesse single.
1: Uh,
2: do you know who Jesse single is? No. Jesse single is a journalist. Back in the day, he was a, he wrote for New York magazine. That's how I first became familiar with him. Okay. And he, uh, they had a segment of New York Magazine that was about kind of like science and psychology and, you know, stuff like that. You have okay. a culture section, you know, arts, culture, movies, whatever. They had like a kind of a sciencey, and he did that. Okay. And around that time, he wrote an article for The Atlantic, which was made into a cover piece about the subject of detransitioning. Detransitioning is people, you know, trans kids who decide to transition and then later in life regret the decision and go back to their assigned at birth gender. Uh, Okay. This happens very infrequently. The overwhelming majority of people who transition are very happy with their choices. There's all of the data that shows you, you know, how difficult it is for trans people who aren't allowed to transition and how high the rates of suicide and and attempted suicide and self-harm are. And it is a public health crisis, experts argue, to not allow people to go ahead and transition. Okay. In the body of the art. okay, so the article is published, as a cover story. The whole Twitter is ablaze on it. I'm like, holy shit, this guy Jesse is getting that smoke. Let me go read this article. Because the buzz on Twitter was this was extremely transphobic. I'm like, uh-huh. oh God, like if Jesse's a transphobe, I wanna know. I don't like transphobes. Let me go read this uh-huh. article. I read the article, and sure enough, in the article, now, it's been like seven years or whatever since this came out, so I don't remember exactly, but there was a ton of caveating the way that I just did telling you what D dream- uh. transitioners are. There was all these paragraphs about how, of course, the overwhelming pressure against kids is against transitioning, and we need to have programs to support them in, able to, in it being able to transition. You know, there's all of this mental health research that shows how important it is to support kids in transitioning, and of course, the overwhelming majority of kids think that transitioning is a good you know they, they, it was the right choice for them. Like, very few people want to reverse it. However, there is this very small community of people who feels like they're not ever allowed to be heard because their cases are being weaponized by anti-trans folks to scare parents who are concerned that their kids will do will ha- undergo some, like, an irreversible surgery and then change their mind about it, right? And that the fact of detransitioners uh. is used as a scare tactic by anti-trans advocates to basically say to parents, "What if your kid, you know, has you know surgery in their genitals or you know a mastectomy and then changes their mind? Isn't it horrible for your kid to, then to go back to being the assigned at birth gender and to now have been quote unquote mutilated in these ways?" And so a lot of people were very frustrated with the article because it felt like it was fodder for an anti-trans movement. Now, if you bring up Jesse Single on the internet today, what you are going to be told is that he is a capital T transphobe.
7: Okay. Capital
2: T transphobe. Now, when I hear transphobe, I hear someone who is like, doesn't want to use people's pronouns who, you know, actively is trying to um, demean people who would vote for legislation that would strip the rights away from trans people, those kinds of things. And people argue that Jesse has harassed trans women online, that he um, has an unhealthy obsession with the issue of trans issues and that he writes about it and talks about it too much in his podcast. And maybe that's true. Maybe he does write about it too much and talk about it in his podcast in a way that is suspicious. I'm, I'm open to that. The argument that I've often made with respect to Ch- Jesse is look, if someone spends their whole career writing about women who lie about rape, I'm suspicious. Cause sure. Of yeah, course, yeah. somebody lies. Oh. some women lie about rape, but given the overwhelming yeah. Thrust and of of people who don't report because of stigma and police departments who don't, you know, take rape rape kits or check rape rape kits and all of the the criminals that don't go pro, you know pursued. Uh-huh. It feels weird to be focused on that instead of the overwhelming miscarriage of justice that is people not having their rapists not being pursued. Right. Yeah. However, uh-huh. if you wrote an article about like the art the the Duke rape case. If you if you write an article about Uh a couple of high profile instances of people lying about rape, then I don't think that means you're necessarily anti-woman or anti-survivor or anything like that. Right. And you individuals can decide where Jesse falls along that if you think that he's been too much on the subject or not. But at the time, and it was just this one article, it felt incongruous to me that he was being not criticized for. This article, how people would weaponize this article, the fact that The Atlantic chose to make it a cover issue and had this big kind of saucy, inflammatory cover that I I would agree is trying to stoke parents' fears and is kind of salacious unnecessarily. But again, that's the cover artist, not Jesse. But Uh all of those criticisms are valid. But it felt always a little out of whack to me that he continues to this day to be treated like a quote-unquote pariah. Oh. Now, me even offering that very measured defense of Jesse that I just <laughs> yeah. did will have other people <laughs> saying that I am transgender. Oh, wow. wow. And for years, I wouldn't like a tweet. Like, Jesse could tweet, you know, it's sunny outside. And I would be yeah. I would be like, it's not worth that smoke for me to like Jesse Singles' tweet wow. right now. Wow. Yeah. That, that is how I felt. You know, Jesse's. You know, well, I won't get into that. But the the point is, I he's gone through personal tragedies, and I and Uh I felt guilty about DMing him, saying I'm so sorry that happened to you. Uh But like, not willing to kind of say it publicly. And I've been like, am I am I the problem? Like, am I the villain? Am I lacking integrity to just say out loud that I feel sorry for him when this tragedy befell him? Like a human being? Like, am I stripping my own humanity because I'm falling into all of this? I'm like, I'm self censoring.
1: Wow. So.
2: That was a long story. No, that
1: was a perfectly
2: <laughs> – explained. actually,
1: you, you did an excellent job of um, describing uh, what people deal with today. And I think because, of, of course, back when I was in, in college, like, I think we – Facebook just started and got on our campus like a, a year or two before I graduated. And um, social media has just amplified the ability to get – um, the smoke, you know, in a wider a, a way, in a wider way, you know, through Twitter, through Facebook, and et cetera, that n- now there's a term, and it all makes sense now. My my thing, when you were talking about your discussion, it reminded me of Joe Rogan, and how he discussed in, um transphobia on his show, and it was mm-hmm. a very nuanced, very similar way from what I understand, and hopefully I might get some smoke now, too, mm-hmm. but it, to me, it sounded like um Joe Rogan w- was not, transphobia he just it was a particular case where uh trans um uh trans person was in the ufc fighter, yeah. yeah yeah so but then on different other occasions he was fine same with dave chappelle but all of a sudden he was canceled on that particular topic enough that even and you could relate to this when bernie went on his show like i believe, from what i understand i could be wrong correct me if i'm wrong like aoc was mad at bernie for going on his show was was that
2: I don't have firsthand knowledge oh, okay.
1: of that, but okay. I have I also curious. read that. I yeah, so no I read that. Okay, that exactly. So we both read it. You know, AOC. Forgive me if you didn't. If it's, they lied about you, but that that mm-hmm. even if that was the case, that that would be crazy. That um, uh, she would like just off of hearsay and maybe not even do her own research. But who has time? That's another thing. Who has time to go and listen back to all of um Joe Rogan's transphobic comments or even to. Do I analyze. Um, his name was Jesse. You said the article. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To to. Okay. Let me go and read the actual article and find out for myself. A lot of people just go off of what other people say, and that's how unfortunately the original person gets canceled. But um, right. thank you so much for having me on. I'm gonna give the take. Give it back to the queue. And much love to you, day and my people in the chat. Much love to
2: you. <laughs> much love to you too, Case. Right. Is there live chat now? Because I heard there was live chat, but I don't see it.
1: I see uh Kusha actually it said it, Ross has actually he, like I see something from Kusha on the bottom of my um calling. So I, there might be chat now. So waiting. I don't know. I see
2: it. Maybe I have to like actually fully mm. re-download. I don't know. Mm. Um but thank I'll you. Keep an eye.
1: All right, thank have you. a great one. Bye-bye.
2: You too. Yeah, I I I I think that the social media point that Case just brought up at the end there too is important because that speaks to the permanence of it and also the extent to which it can spread. So like take the Stephanie Grace example. In a pre-internet world, if you say something kind of sus to your friend or something that, you know, has valences to your friend, like, and your your friend can kind of whisper it to someone else, but there's no hard record of what you said. Email means that you put in writing an opinion that you may or may not have thought through or may or may not be what you really believe, but it's there forever for you to have to defend or stand by. And now it can be amplified on the internet infinitely. And I've, I've talked to people with young kids who, who say that bullying is next level now, because if you, if I told my girlfriend, oh, I like Billy and you know, she can tell other kids in class that I like Billy, but it's her word against mine. And I can deny, deny, deny. If I email her, I like Billy, look at this hot pick of Billy and DM, DM her on Instagram thirst traps that Billy been posting. She can screen grab that. And that's humiliating, right? And I think that's a little bit of what's going on here too. It's not just that you don't have access to, you know, you're, it's harder to talk about what you really believe. It's that you can just never live it down. And that's a little bit what's going on with Jesse. If you Google Jesse Single right now, I bet what you get is a bunch of stuff about him being a transphobe. And that's like on his public record. And again, to Case's point, people are not going to research it. Maybe you research it and you still decide he's a transphobe. Fair enough. But I would guess, I would guess that your image of what he said and wrote and what you think when you hear Jesse Singles a transphobe are very different in the same way that even if you still think that Joe Rogan's pr- comments, his thoughts, feelings, and opinions about trans women MMA fighters, you disagree with him. What is actually said and what you think he said by virtue of him being called a transphobe in this kind of broader way are, are going to be different in the average person's mind. And if I know that there's some trans callers that call in sometimes. I would love to hear from you specifically on this issue. I'm scrolling through. I don't see anybody oh, – there she is. Okay. Well, I'm going to get to you. Uh, right. We go. Uh, Jason, you're up next.
8: Hey, Brie. How's it going?
2: I'm doing well. How are you?
8: I'm good. Um, I was, I guess, semi-conflicted with, with the, I guess, the general premise because on one hand, um, I feel like I've, I've I kind of agree with the premise, right? I've heard a lot like of different high profile cases of different professors being canceled and just like the general sort of tenure on sort of campuses and the environment and stuff like that. But again, that's all through like anecdote and news stories, right? And then on the other hand, I mean, I just graduated about two years ago and um, maybe this might be like my class reduction is coming out, but I went to a school where you know, a majority of the kids were, you know, came from working class backgrounds um, and stuff like that. And so and I was generally in the STEM sort of classes. And I feel like it was sort of like. I don't know, sometimes I feel like when I hear these stories, I'm like, is this something that's just going on sort of in elite institutions and then it doesn't really apply to us? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe like because I'm in a different major, it doesn't really apply to us. So I guess I was just kind of struggling with those two, I guess, valencies, if you will. Because on one hand, I get it. I see it through news stories. But as a person who went to college and went to college recently, I I guess maybe the immediate environment I was a part of, I was like, is this really generalizable to the environment that I'm currently in?
2: Well, again, like, I can't speak to what's happening in college either because I'm 36 (laughs) years old. But um, look... Here, here's, here's how I would put the problem and how I, why I think it's generalizable outside of those kinds of academic contexts or even elite academic contexts. And you can say that germ- journalism is also an elite context and fair, like totes fair. Right. Um, <laughs> let's say I am sincerely, like I've never listened to Joe Rogan and I don't know anything about anything, but somebody kind of puts the question to me of, you know, how should we handle, how should we handle this is already like so canceled what I'm trying to push through. How should we handle the fact that we decided as a society hundreds of years ago to seg like to gender segregate sports because of an understanding that in the aggregate, there are these differences between cis men and cis women and that we want cis women to be able to compete with against their own kind of equally yoked folks. And now Trans women are raising this question of what the standard should be because some of the kind of physical advantages that cis men have are not or still exist for trans women. Right.
7: Mm -hmm. And
2: how should we deal with that? Like what is fair for cis women athletes that also allows for trans women athletes to be able to compete, especially if they've like worked their whole life and they, you know, They've decided to transition and, you know, now are they supposed to give up on all their training? Like, what should we do? This is a, a thorny issue.
7: Mm-hmm.
2: To even say, like, I don't know. Or to say, like, I, let, me, let, me talk t- let, me, let me talk to you about it. Uh, maybe you're a trans woman who's been on one of these Olympic athletic panels coming to come up with these rules. Like, you're a real expert. Like, you're a real expert for many reasons, both professionally and personally. There are There are some people who will judge you for coming to it even with ignorance and wanting to know more. Right. I feel like we are in a space where even just raising that, like to, to not have you, I, I know what the right position is, right? I'm not stupid. I know okay. the right position is for me to say that a hundred percent, no matter what, a hundred percent of the time, trans women should be allowed to compete with, you know, in, 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 broadly women's sports. And like, that's just a no brainer. And Oh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Hello yeah can you hear what me did I just do oh hello my, my phone just hello? my earphones just cut out and i can't hear anything for some reason and i don't know hello this is like the deep state <laughs> oh oh there it is sorry sorry my bad can you hear me now yeah i can hear you i pressed i i banged in the table and i pressed a button on my road thing no um So I know what the right answer is. The right answer is for me to say, you know, one hundred percent, all all women can compete together regardless of their cis or trans, and that's that. Right. And for me to even question whether or not, like, this is what this is what Joe Rogan was talking about in the show in that episode.
7: Right.
2: You know, there was an instance where a a trans woman uh, fighter fought a cis woman and like kicked her ass, (laughs) and the cis woman got like hurt, injured in a way that was like significant.
8: Right. Like bodily harm.
2: Right. And to even entertain whether that is a scenario that we want to be, be put, like putting, you know, cis women athletes in or is there a way to mitigate it? Is there a way to like level the playing field? Is there a way like in the Olympic standards, my understanding is that they have decided that like you have to be going through hormone treatment for a certain period of time and right. have a certain hormone levels. And then it's all even Stevens and it's fine, which seems reasonable to me. The experts decided that seems reasonable to me, not that it's any of my business. But to even be like, I don't know, to not have the knee-jerk "quote unquote" correct answer in some circles makes like stains you as someone who must not have the best interests of trans women at heart, who does not see them as equals, who is willing to throw them under the bus at the drop of a dime, who is a turf, who's putting the interests of "quote you know, you know, uh, you know, a feminist who says like, you know, cis women's rights are being marginalized at the expense of trans women, and like all of these things get bundled into there. Right. And to me, this is like, this shouldn't be this level of, of stress about this particular conversation, given that it it's so niche. But also, to be honest, most people, I would argue, <laughs> kind of have this, oh, yeah, that does seem like a little bit of a concern. Like, what's the deal? Approach to this. Like, I think your average person on the street is going to be like, oh, yeah, that does sound like a bit of a conundrum. Right. And it, it feels like there's a, it's out of step with reality. Like people bemoan how many folks watch Joe Rogan. Oh, it's so popular. Why is it so popular? It's so bigoted and backward and anti-vax and all these things. I, this is not a value judgment, but so many people think and feel all the same way that Joe Rogan does. He is an everyman to so many people. So to me, if you disagree with Joe Rogan, if you think he's getting something wrong, of course you want to go on his show. Of course you want to talk to him about it. Of course you want to persuade him. But I don't think that stigmatizing him and trying to ostracize, ostracize the majority, (laughs) trying to ostracize and shame, like the quote unquote silent majority is going to get you anywhere. Right.
8: Yeah. And it's funny because I was was even thinking of, like, a step further where, like, you know, because, like, J.K. Rowling is always in hot water for all of this stuff and Mm -hmm. even my personal taste for, like, saying, oh, I love Harry Potter. And a part of me is just like, should I say that now or should I just kind of keep it up, you know? like
2: Well, you shouldn't say that because Harry Potter has always been mediocre stuff. (laughs) Oh,
8: wow. Oh, those are fighting <laughs> words. You know what? I'm going to cancel my Patreon subscription. <laughs> yeah, that's what takes me out, finally. <laughs> yeah. Once you mess with Harry Potter, it's done. No, but it, it is, it's a weird time, I would say, in general, just because we are sort of navigating these conversations and we're trying to do them in good faith. And, you know, we are all coming from a place of ignorance with a lot of different things. And I think, I guess... What I advocate for is always just like if you're curious about it and you're coming to it with good faith and you're willing to learn and be open and on both sides of it, I feel like you can always get to a place that's interesting and in that gray because that's kind of where the magic happens, I Mm -hmm. feel, instead of sort of sticking to orthodoxies and just having like talking heads yell at each other, which is always what the mainstream has. Yeah.
2: Well, here's what I want to say about that. When I saw the response to Emma's article, I presumed based on the commentary that she was conservative. Right. And I was surprised to see both in the article and in you know, our conversation that she identifies as a liberal. Right. And so to me that, you know, and I, this is not shade. All of my friends, like my whole cohort was like dragging her on the Internet. And when I read their drags, I was like, oh, I agree with these drags as standalone points. But the fact that they were getting the fundamental fact of who she was and what angle she was coming from wrong suggested to me that while these drags might be valid points standing alone, they were made in bad faith.
1: Right.
2: Because they're being just charges made at this woman that are just not about her. And maybe you're legitimately mad at a, a kind of article that gets written, but this isn't that article
8: right it's funny because i think a couple of collins ago there was um, i think it was on the trucker episode there was a gentleman who came on and you had a very interesting discussion with him and sort of he mentioned like colonialism and how he was irish and
7: mm-hmm.
8: how he understands what colonialism is and you know i kind of just wanted to get on the collin and sort of like you know correct the record a little bit but i but by the end of your conversation with him I just felt, like, satisfied with everything because, like, I I felt like this sort of situation where, like, our histories might be different, but our future is tied to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of where I came to at the end of your conversation with, with the gentleman. And I feel like if we could sort of, I don't know, curate media to have conversations more like that, including, you know, like articles about cancel culture and where we're all coming from, I think we could all get to an interesting place of just being satisfied with everybody's position mm-hmm. and come to it with, you know, good faith discussion, but I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you for calling Jason. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would say when I do these panels or an interview, I, I would like every show to be a panel with people who disagree with each other, but if, sometimes I have to play the role of the person who disagrees, like in this last episode. And I am always hoping for agreement at the end, and I know that doesn't make for good TV, and that's, I guess, why I don't have, like, debate me bro levels of subscribers on YouTube, but my, pers- my, my approach is to say, like, where's the common ground here? And maybe there, that isn't to say we should ignore the extent to, there, to which there isn't common ground, but I want us to be understanding each other. And so often these conversations are endless and annoying because we, like, are refusing to understand each other. And it was a little dispiriting for me to dig into what had happened with Emma, having just seen, like, I reached out to her just having seen the internet drama, not really understanding who she was. And then realizing that it was so, like, there's so many people in my own cohort who I respect had approached this with such bad faith. Um. But, Eric, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Okay.
9: Avery, hey Eric. So there was the two things that were kind of on my mind about when it comes to uh, the topic of the today's call in is something that like I I have difficulty uh you know struggle with is what exactly does it mean to be canceled? And you actually kind of touched on this second one in when you were talking to Emma. What can we do about it? Mm Because in the conversation is if I say something quote-unquote spicy (laughs) a bunch of people get mad at me for saying that even if my intention was to have an honest type of conversation there's no like what can I do about that what is like I can't say now all y'all need to shut up and I'm right and you're wrong I like so I have struggling dealing with the when so it's one of the issues I have when it comes to dealing with the conversation of cancel culture, is this idea uh, one? What does it technically mean to be canceled? Is, it, is that sometimes I feel like it's something that I can see but can't define? Mm-hmm. And also, what do you do about it? Because we have the First Amendment, right? Like, not like we can just say if someone comes at me. Let's say if I say, I uh, like Joe Rogan on the whole thing that his aspect of trans, uh, his view on trans uh, transgender athletes, people. yeah, yeah, trans athletes in sports okay, he said it, we canceled him, they, then people respond to that. What can I do to stop that? All I can do is just lend my voice and try to say, well, yeah.
2: Yeah, so so, so I think, okay, there's what people, obviously, how people use it and how I think I should be used. So we all know how people use it. Um, mm-hmm. How I think it, what I think the, the, the there there is, what's real is that to me, what I would characterize as cancellation, it's not about actually being canceled. It's not about like not having a platform or anything like that, because I don't think that Joe Rogan is obviously not canceled in that respect. But to the extent that there, there is something, whether or not you want to call it canceling, which is where there is a toxic association with a person on the basis of something they are perceived to believe that is not really true. That, that, is, that is how I would define it. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that there is a narrative about someone that is in, framed in an intentionally stigmatizing manner that is so stigmatizing that association with that person is stigmatizing to everybody, is stigmatizing in and of itself, right? So, like, for example, if I had a take that said, you know, um, uh, Palestine is being occupied, Okay. We are in a level of discourse today, maybe not 10 or 15 years ago, but we're in a level of discourse today that that doesn't get you in and of itself canceled. People might disagree. You might have a fight with someone, you know, about it. (laughs) But that statement in and of itself is not going to get you canceled. If I say I believe in Medicare for all, plenty of people disagree. But me saying that is not something that's going to get me quote unquote canceled. If I were to say, I think that Theocracies are wrong And Israel is no different And I don't think that there should be a such thing As a Jewish state
9: Uh, 10 out of 10 that's cancelable Right? Actually since you bring up that point I think like one of the best examples Of what you were Talking about with Emma is what happened With Whoopi Goldberg Mm. Is this idea like I think when when I saw what happened With Whoopi Goldberg And I see that what happened to her was a form of cancelization. Mm -hmm. It it, it had that, you know, air to it. Was she completely canceled? She ended up being back in the view. Her money wasn't really touched. Mm -hmm. She's talking. But I'm pretty sure now she will never say anything close about Israel or Jewish people ever again. Or be very careful what she says. Correct.
2: Correct. And so, and it's because it is not because of what she said. Like, that's the thing. It's like, you can disagree with what she said. You can think that she was wrong as everyone did on our panel. Like everyone mm-hmm. thinks that, you know, she misunderstood history and the nature of how Nazis perceived Jews as ethnic, as an ethnic group. Like she, she misunderstood that and was wrong about that. But like be, being wrong, shouldn't get you publicly censored. It should be like, Hey, you were wrong. And, oh, and then you respond, oh, yeah, I guess I was wrong. And then you move on.
9: <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. And the last thing I say before I go is that one thing that I wish more people, I think you do a really good job of this. I think there's a few people who are on the, um, the in the left sphere who do a good job of this, is when they hear people, like people like Joe Rogan and um, – even like let's take how you how you handled the Whoopi goldberg situation is it seem like you come from i feel like one of the issues with a lot of with a lot of leftists is that they listen to respond not to understand and they they make they take they make um and because of this and it kind of falls in like kind of like canceling talking crap like that and they fall into this trap where they have arguments and have fights about stuff that don't really matter. Like, I don't understand why the left, like, you can say Joe Rogan said something I disagree with, like what Ben Burgess went on Joe Rogan's show. He said, I, I disagree with some of the things that, you know, Joe Rogan has said. Mm-hmm. But when you, like, bring up every single thing, every single time Joe Rogan comes up, it's Joe Rogan is a right, like a right wing nut job or you know, anti or anti-vaxxer when he's not really that and it's like yeah i just wish that they were better at being like okay here's what he's like uh here's what he said here's what she said and here's why i just did i wish everyone would do this much. yeah it's bad faith Yeah,
2: it's bad faith man and when you first asked your question there was a two-parter and my response to the second part of it is i think that you have to My approach, and I'm not saying this, I do this all the time in my everyday life and that I'm not, like, cussing people out on the side in real life and stuff. Like, I lose my temper. But in when I think it matters when I'm having these public conversations, what I bring to mind is you have to decide this person is operating in good faith. Mm. I operate as though they are operating in good faith.
9: And I know you get in trouble for doing that.
2: Yeah, people don't want me to even talk to you. Oh, you're going to platform, Emma. You're going to platform. I'm like, okay. Like, I, I'm, I'm not doing it for her. I'm doing it for me. <laughs> I want to understand. I want us to be able to have a conversation about what was actually said and see if we can move the ball forward anymore. I'm 36 years old. It's my 15-year reunion this year. I, you know, I haven't been in college in a long time. I want to know what's up.
9: Definitely. Definitely. So I'm going to let you, I'm going to go. This is great. Um, thank you for having me. Thank you, Eric.
2: Jonathan, what's on your mind?
10: <clears throat> Hi, Bree. Thank you for taking my call. Of course. I wanted to ask you about what your theory is regarding the cultural context that precipitated all this discussion about cancel culture because I went to a uh, university from 2014 through 2018. So I think right Right before uh, this became a really big point of discussion for people, I, I really don't recall hearing the term at all during my first couple of years of college. You graduated when... in 2018? Yes, that's
2: correct. Okay, this was, this was percolating by then. Because remember, all of that Milo Yiannopoulos stuff, that was like 2015, 2016.
10: Oh, that was actually my university, my alma mater. <laughs> yeah, so you don't, you don't consider that to be part of it all? No, no, I do. I meant, I meant more so my first couple of years. It, it wasn't really a thing. It was really after Trump was elected. And my, my understanding is that was when this started to become a thing. I, I, I felt that maybe the first people who I heard the term cancel culture from were definitely some of the more conservative classmates on my campus who I think may have conflated the term with just receiving pushback for, espousing right of center views mm-hmm. but i'm not i'm not 100 sure if you know trump's election was what um s- sort of kicked off this whole concept of cancel culture is is that what you think may have been the cause or is it something so
2: else? the the fact of Chris ruffo and crt being so purposefully put out there as a propaganda tool i wasn't paying as close attention to it back then you know i wasn't doing it professionally but it seems to me likely that this stuff didn't spring up organically out of the earth however i do think there is an organic component that you know people don't make up propaganda out of nowhere they take something real and they manipulate it like i, I was once was interviewed early in bernie campaign in the bernie campaign um and i was asked about what i thought about russian, misinf- russian quote unquote misinformation russian quote-unquote weaponizing black people being frustrated with the American government and saying that the government was racist. And like, what did I think about that? And I was like, well, if the government weren't racist, then it wouldn't be a propaganda tool, but there's no lie. (laughs) But you know, there's propaganda that says the government is racist. It's not a lie. And if America wants to fix it, they should, they want to, you know, push back against Russian propaganda. They should try not being racist. And I got in trouble for saying that. (laughs)
7: Um,
2: But you know, I, I, I do think that there is a, um, like, so there's a there, there, and the there, there is this. I remember being in college, and I'm guilty of this, right? Like, I'm calling me out now. There would be times in my broadly liberal institution where a handful of conservatives, I had one conservative friend, and my one conservative Republican friend, uh, we would get in these arguments about things, abortion, et cetera, and I would very reductively call him every name of the book, you know. How could you? You don't care about women. I would make these maximalist claims. Like, you know, I never called him racist. I mean, that wasn't really the issue in the debates we were having. And over time, he's still a very close friend of mine. Over time like we basically didn't stop talking after two thousand and eight because of Obama, Geraldine Ferraro related arguments. And then everything changed and I began to change and our relationship got closer again as time moved on. And now I think of him as one of the kindest, most caring, compassionate, sweetest person people I know. And I have not had a direct conversation about his beliefs in a long time, but I know that he's not, you know, kind of homophobic. And the, the things that I thought that he might be back then based on the fact that he was conservative and it was 2003. Sure. And I reflect on the things that I said to him, and the judgments that I made about him and the kind of atmosphere on these campuses where if someone espouses a conservative opinion, it is true that many of us would have said, many liberals, you know, you know, kids on campus would say, Oh, that person is a racist. Um, That person didn't vote for Obama. So they're racist. That person didn't um, doesn't agree with me that we should end qualify immunity. So they're racist. You know, that, that's the kind of, You know, I don't want to associate with that person because they don't respect my humanity. They don't see my full personhood. Like, this is the kind of language we use, right? Like, I used to use, I'll speak for myself, and I hear people continuing to use. And I don't know how I feel about that today. Because on one hand, as someone who used to talk like that, I understand why people talk like that. And I don't think it's necessarily inaccurate. You know, if my community is being disproportionately affected by a certain policy, and your views on the policy have political implications that will cause direct harm to my group, it's not wrong for me to say your beliefs are killing my people. But I also don't necessarily think that that is the most fertile ground for conversation.
10: (laughs) Yeah. I I can see what you mean there.
2: Yeah.
10: There's more productive ways, I guess, to frame the the disagreement.
2: Yeah. And and it's not, I I don't, I'm not like mad at the marginalized people who want to frame it that way because Sometimes, like, you're, like I said on the show, like you're so used to being marginalized that you feel like, a, you feel like you're doing an uphill battle. You're, you feel like you're fighting against white hegemony and cis hegemony and, and male and the patriarchy and all of these things. And even though in your liberal bastion you might be the majority, you very much feel like you're the underdog still. And the problem is both sides are feeling like they're the underdog. And, but, the, but the liberal side is kind of weaponizing a kind of righteousness. And like at this maximalist self-righteousness that isn't necessarily wrong, but which doesn't really leave any room for ambiguity. You're either with me or you're the devil. You're either with me or you don't respect my black body. You know what I mean? You're either you're either with me or you're a transphobe. And even not knowing or being confused or just wanting to talk it through, you know. You know, we'll have people not want to have be around you. Now, it is also completely fair, and I said this on the podcast, for you to not have the emotional energy to be arguing with people like my friend your whole life. Like that is completely fair to want to make friendships with people who already agree with you. Hell, like I get it. Like there's only so many hours in a day. But there are trade-offs Definitely. there that I think we can acknowledge as a community. You know, and I think that this is what I was saying to Emma, like, I'm not saying that we should have, like, the Gestapo that we should be reporting people to on campuses, but I think it sometimes would be nice to have a space where people knew, like, there was a presumption of good faith, and you could actually talk about some of these more difficult questions without the rhetoric being, like, so high strung that it's like, you already agree with me, or you're racist, or sexist, or transphobe, or whatever, anti-immigrant, whatever it is. And you don't have to opt into that space if you're a marginalized person and you're like tired, you're just trying to pass exams, like you don't have to come to the room. But I think that sometimes I do wish there were a room, a safe space, if you will, for a more radical, difficult conversation.
10: Indeed. Yeah, that's something I guess we can definitely strive for as people who are trying to have conversations like that on a platform like this. I think. I think this platform is really conducive to people having respectful debates, which is why I enjoy it so much. But yeah, thank you for your response. I found it really interesting. I'll I'll, uh, probably move on now so that other people in the queue can have a chance, but thanks.
2: Thank you, Jonathan. All right, Sam, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind.
11: Hey, Brianna, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. How about yourself?
11: Doing okay. Um, I'm... I'm against the cancel culture in general. Of course, I'm. I think most people would say that they are in general, um, but realistically, once a sing, once a single topic comes up, that's that affects their relationship with their social peers, or work peers, or online peers—people that they find close to them—they will fold and and start adding. Words on to the end, end of their su- uh, sentence to try to um, like give a counter narrative to what they actually believe. And overall, like, well, I feel this way, but blah, blah, blah. They feel like they need to add that point. And they feel the need to censor those that their peers uh, want to censor as well. Um, and Overall, like, can I ask you, Brianna, what do you think is – what do you feel is the root cause of this censorship and cancel culture?
2: Well, I do want to say I think some of it is good faith. While you were talking, I was thinking to myself, well, aren't there some beliefs that deserve it? <laughs> you know, like if I have some – if someone comes waltzing through campus and they're just like fully – you know, Jews aren't human. Black people aren't human. Immigrants mm-hmm. should you know, you, if you see an immigrant, stab him in the eye, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like you shouldn't be around, like, yeah, I, my instinct is that you shouldn't be here. Like you shouldn't be around. Like, I don't want you mm-hmm. anywhere near me. I don't want you in my class. Like maybe I don't have the power to keep you out of my class and maybe it's wrong to keep you out of my class for speech reasons. But that seems like toxic and not con- conducive to any kind of learning environment. Yeah.
7: Um, yeah.
2: Well. But like the question is where do you draw the lines there? Because there's plenty of people who say, listening to trans, uh, listening to Joe Rogan, um, liking that Dave Chappelle skit, whatever it is, like not not supporting Black Lives Matter. Let's take that as an example. You know, not not supporting Colin Kaepernick kneeling is tantamount to being anti-black, to being racist, to being a bigot, and. While, like, I definitely feel like there are lines that are too far. And, like, I, you know, my instinct is like, my instinct, my libertarian instincts go out the window when I think about some kinds of speech. And I think, well, fuck it. Like, no, they shouldn't be allowed in polite society. That's monstrous. The problem is we are all defining these lines differently. And if I can't ha- come up with some, you know, criteria that's at all consistent for how to define it, then maybe I am not, like maybe we're all better off not, not like trying not to feel that way, trying not to do that. I mean, this was kind of at the root of my disagreement with Talia, right? Like Mm -hmm. we have different sensitivity levels to the idea of even thinking about intellectually what motivates emotionally a white supremacist. Mm
7: Mm-hmm.
2: Now I would argue that we both have equal claim to ha- having equal levels of sensitivity, given that white supremacists like neither Talia nor myself. <laughs> However, she obviously felt more like she she was at a at, she's at a place emotionally, and I don't mean this as a judgment, but like her, emotionally, her responsiveness to the idea of someone who thinks and feels in those ways is so like hot that to even consider what's motivating them to her it felt like she was saying thinking that i like was granting them too much humanity too much attention too much you know deference thinking of them as too human in a way that was like almost a zero-sum game with her own humanity and my emotional response to those people is different than hers maybe because i haven't been as proximate to them you know she's been undercover with them all that kind of stuff but for me in the interest of my community, I'm thinking, well, I want to know what's causing them because I want to know what's stopping them. And it's not about me humanizing them. It's about me saying they are humans and they have they're subject to the same kind of motivations that everybody is. And it's the extent that I can understand them to Daryl Davis some people out of it, or to understand the social factors that push people into it, it is almost my responsibility to make those inquiries.
11: So Talia was an interesting interesting encounter in that she when she basically went undercover. With mm-hmm. white supremacists to um, have an understanding of um, you know their culture,
7: but and she did.
2: But she see that's what I thought, and I read her book. But what her what she says is she did not go undercover to have a better understanding of them. She went okay. undercover to find their names and dox them and report okay. them to the police. So okay. we were on two so, different ideological projects here. <laughs> so her intention going in,
11: like, says a lot about her motives overall, obviously. And the, the motives of someone like Chris Hedges, who went undercover um, into certain radical groups in the United States, um, and um, even some weird kinky groups in the United States, um, he went in to understand, right? Instead of uh, having that really negative um, intention going in. And I I feel like um, that... That extremist censorship and extreme um, cancel culture ideology is bred from an environment, um, well, that breeds it. Uh, in that, you know, there's a there's currently a financial structure and incentive behind um, having really strong ideologies that are enforced by. Uh, the media politicians um, and covert groups as well with the CIA for the purpose of um, keep it, perpetuating a system that allows for injustice for minor, minority uh, groups and for the working class and for disa- for disabled individuals in general. And the perpetuation of that system is tantam is the most important thing overall. And it's, Censorship is just a natural part of what comes along with that environment. We look into the historical context and wonder how this, how censorship could have came about in, um, in the McCarthy, you know, McCarthy trials, the Red Scare, or the Cold War. Um, and we wanna delude ourselves into believing that history is over and we're in a time of enlightenment now, but those incentive structures keep coming to play on both the political you know, upper level, as well as in the school system and um, in social, social groups as well. Um, that's why we add the but blah, blah, blah at the end of our sentence to um, show that we're not bigots and we're understanding of each other. And people like Talia, there's a a lack of nuance there and personally for me I feel like free speech needs to be a right and rights need to be absolute just like the right to water or right to food because the potential for dehumanization of groups the potential potential for oppression in general whether it's a minority or majority of people is too great and um, too delicate a thing Society is too delicate to to deal with um, the lack of guaranteed rights. So I am a free free speech absolut absolutist, and the best way to deal with these, um, whether it's misinformation or negative ideas, is is to tackle it through policy, so that people feel uh, financially stable enough not to go into these extreme places. We don't bomb play, we don't bomb countries, so that radical groups don't from them. We don't have the CIA um, <laughs> putting money into foreign countries, radicalizing, radicalizing groups to um, stoke uh, extreme ideologies, which bite us in the butt later. Like, we need to ch- change overhaul the system to get to the place where uh, cancel culture doesn't need to be a thing.
2: And... So you're to- saying that you think that cancel culture comes out of a kind of a powerlessness a- about all these systemic harms and people are kind of Making their own little fiefdoms where they can.
11: That's a part of it, but it's also because, for example, let's go to politicians and media. Politicians love talking about cancel culture and generalized values rather than policy because they don't want to do anything and they want to perpetuate a system of um, of property values and stock values and equity values in general. And and any change to the system overall will... Seriously, have effects on on
2: those values. Yeah, that's the, that's the culture wars in general speaking, but yeah. cancel culture in particular. I don't know that that's. I mean, it's not really. I mean, it's not really a speech. It's not really a well, speech issue in any well, like, they, First Amendment sense.
11: Well, they, when they stoke the when they stoke these flames in the media,
2: mm-hmm.
11: people hear it. They react to it. People get behind it. They're incentivized to believe this, whether they want to go into politics, poli-sci, or um, they ha- they're they just generally good people and they want to do the right thing and the media is telling them this is the right thing. And they feel like just any counter-narrative to this is like extremely bigoted. So I, I feel like it stems from that, personally. Uh, that's where the incentive structure is. Okay. And I mean... also I would say, um, in, I went to UC Davis. There was a conservative, so I, I, I'm a, I am on the left. It was a conservative that was coming on campus. I um, can't remember who it was, but there were protests. In the end, the the person ended up not coming. But I don't I don't think they were planning to shut him down. There were there's a right to protest. They weren't going to block the door and not let him in. Um, they weren't going to attack him or anything. Or, um, but th- that's totally fine. I think there were, was a group that tried to get the school to not let that person come talk, and I'm against that.
2: Yeah. No, I'm with um, you. I think that all of the things Jordan Peterson complains about people turning their back on him and stuff in the lecture halls, like that's not cancel culture. That's people also doing speech. And I think that you know a lot of people who say that cancel culture exists make that point. And I think that's a right point. But I do think in addition that there is a there there. I don't know if you want to call it cancel culture or whatever, but I think there is a there there. One other thing I do want to say before I move on is, in, in fairness to Talia, I don't. There was an earlier characterization of her approach being um to ha- uh like ha- like harsh you didn't use the word harsh but something like that and i don't think she is wrong <laughs> to have a visceral hatred for the white supremacists that she was tracking and following or for wanting to report them you know for their illegal okay. activities and terrorism terrorist activities i don't have a problem at all with that and i don't you know I thought that we were going to be, have a conversation about other things learned along the way. <laughs>
7: yeah.
2: And she didn't want to have that conversation.
11: It didn't, it didn't get to that point. Yeah. No,
2: um, but I don't, I just want to be really clear that like, I am not, you know, I don't c- criticize the idea. I'm not like, it's not like a free speech issue or a cancel it, cancel culture issue to want to report someone who's planning to do terrorism against Jews or blacks or whomever it is. <laughs> but it
11: is a free speech issue when you're going to uh, counter protest, and you want to punch the other side in the face. Um, well, no, it's, that's not a free speech. Call. I mean, that's
2: that's yeah. just people punch each other and the lo- police are going to come and arrest people and we might well, get charged that's, with assault, but that's, the, that's but, what that is.
11: Well, the point <laughs> is to shut down the protest and prevent people from coming out to protest. So it's an attempt to stop speech before it even happens.
2: Well, so is protesting. So is the counter-protest, and it often works for your example.
11: Well, I think the, the right... Personally, I think the right and the left both love counter protests because they like they enjoy the attention.
2: (laughs) Okay, well, that's that's neither here nor there. But thank you, Sam. I appreciate you calling in. Bye. Bye, bye. Grace, what's on your mind? Hey there. Um, Yeah,
12: I I think a lot about this, obviously, as I move through the world today, and just the idea that um, I'm worried that self censoring or not asking questions can lead to like more ignorance or in some cases more radical, more radicalization. Um, If somebody feels like they don't have like a space to ask a question. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, a lot of people I know, you know, are talking about how it's not their responsibility to do the labor of explaining these things to Mm -hmm. people. Um, And I think, I don't necessarily have a feeling either which way on it. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that, because I definitely see how, you know, I mean, when someone's like, yeah, you could just Google it. But then part of me is like, but what internet are they on? What algorithm do they have?
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's like this, this came up recently with the, you know, Russia invades Ukraine and my timeline is just suddenly filled with people calling each other stupid and wrong. And I literally was just trying to figure out why someone thought the other person was stupid or wrong, but because the discourse was 100% ad, ad hominems and "you're a tanky" or oh, "you're a State Department," I it I literally couldn't Google it. Like, I can Google why abstractly somebody might be like what I can Google what "tanky" means, <laughs> but I, I can't. It takes me I me mean, all of this research to figure out what aaron monte is being accused of and then often and, and also often i'm trying to like prove a negative right like oftentimes it's someone leveraging an accusation that they can't actually substantiate and so now i'm spending all this time trying to google around for something that doesn't exist
12: yeah and i mean i personally have said like zero about russia on the internet um i'm very confused what it means when someone just says i stand with ukraine i mean everyone i know is saying that i don't know I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, yeah, And yeah, I just I feel stuck. And I, you know, I kind of like the idea of calling people in versus calling them out. Um, and so I feel like I'm trying to figure out how best to go about that. And also, it seems to me that if people are concerned about being quote, unquote, canceled, they may be people who already have um, concern about the feelings or thoughts of others. Like they may be more likely to be people acting in good faith because Mm -hmm. I also have the same people, you know, I mean, there's also the subsect of people who are like, I, you can't say anything anymore, you know, and usually they just want to say what they want to say and be ignorant and learn nothing also, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just, I was just curious if you think what you think about the labor piece or how we could address, um, folks in this situation
2: well i've always hated that line that it's not my job to teach you because because here's the thing it totally isn't then go away somewhere and don't do it but but here's the problem here's the problem with that line the problem is the person both wants to be the virtuous keeper of knowledge and refuser to engage in a way that's actually socially productive they want the virtue of being like i know the right opinions i have the right take But also none of the responsibility of doing something that would make the world a better place by sharing that knowledge. So if you don't want to engage with people, go sit home. Nobody's talking to you anyway. Like (laughs) you obviously inserted yourself into a thing and then decided that you wanted to divest from it the second it was going to require anything of you. You don't get to pretend. You can say, look, I'm tired. I got to wake up in the morning. I wish I could help you, but I just don't have the bandwidth. But not like morally, self-righteously walk around like you should read a book. My community, like, da, da, da. like, it's like, no, it's not for the white person. It's I'm sorry, whoever it is. Sorry, it's not for the person who didn't know. I mean, like, the way I encounter is always is like with race stuff, you know. But it's not me explaining to you, not you literally, Grace, but me explaining to someone why they don't get some racial concept, or, or like, I shouldn't say even don't get, don't agree with me about some racial concept is to my benefit. That's a voter. That That's someone who may or may not join me in protest. That's someone who may or may not be giving mutual aid on the basis of my explanation to my community, to something that I claim to care about. So if you are, as a human being, who has kids and a job and responsibilities, don't want to engage that conversation, God bless you. Don't do it. But don't get on Twitter talking about, oh, you asked me to explain by tweet. You tweeted! <laughs> like, You you chose to have this conversation, but you're the one who didn't actually want to be challenged. You know, we accuse the people who are claiming, you know, cancel culture. You're the one who put yourself out there and then don't want to actually substantiate your beliefs. And I said this on the podcast. I think a lot of people start saying that because they aren't actually able to substantiate their beliefs. And that doesn't mean they're wrong, by the way. Like, I'm not saying all these, like, liberals leftists are wrong when they're making these claims and then huffing away. Like, I agree with all these things. Obviously, social justice, rah, rah. But, like, it's, it's sometimes hard because we're never challenged. We are not challenged. My conservative friend that I mentioned before, he knew everything upright, backward, and center. Would we'll quote the Federalist Papers to you, Thomas Paine, blah, 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 because he was in a minority. He was, you know, from, from New York. Now he's here in Cambridge. He is a political minority and has been his entire life. And so he has learned to defend himself and defend his beliefs. I'm not, I don't think he was right about stuff, but he knew what he was talking about and had an argument. Whereas all of us liberals had been floating around in mother's milk, you know, in amniotic fluid, the entire, our entire lives. And we're like blinking like a newborn in the light because we had never actually had had to say anything more than, Oh God, like anti-abortion protesters are the worst. Oh, uh, like racist? Am I right? Like, and that was what our discourse was because we were in a bubble and we never had to like explain.
12: Yeah, I mean, for my, my personal policy is if somebody's actually wanting to have a conversation and be respectful, then I'm I'm down for that. Um, but it, when it turns disrespectful and they're clearly not interested in that, then that's when I walk away you know
2: yeah but the thing was my friend was always respectful and i would get heated i would get heated because my feeling was that he was a lot he could be there dispassionate and calm because he was a white man and none of this affected him and yada 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 and like some of that is true like i did feel very personally like invested in a way that i you know maybe he did maybe he did feel very personally invested maybe he deeply believed as a catholic and stuff and, and all this stuff um but as I've gotten older, and I'm not saying I was, I'm was i right or wrong or anything, but empirically, as I've gotten older, I've been able to emotionally det- detach from that stuff a little bit better. And I find it it's better for me. It's better for my emotional health if I just presume other people are in good faith. It's like self-preservation. Because me bringing all this other narrative into it about how, like, it's my black body and my uterus. And, and I'm not wrong to believe those things. The stakes are higher for me. But it doesn't necessarily help the dialogue for me to be bringing all that baggage into. It. And that's a difficult road to toe because I'm not going to tell anybody they, their onus is on them to have a conversation. I'm not going to tell anybody that they shouldn't feel the way they feel. I shouldn't tell, I'm not going to tell anybody from a marginalized group that it's not an uphill battle and it's un, and not unfair that they have to defend their views against you know, white, cis, male hegemony and all of that. Because like, they're right. But this is, again, this conversation we're always having about, like, what is right, what is righteous, and what is effective.
12: Yeah, and I think some people, maybe, if you're not familiar with some of these things, I mean, you got to catch, you know, you have to catch up. Um, You have to be given the opportunity to catch up, you know? Yeah. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah.
12: But. Okay. Well, I really appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed the episode and I don't know what happens on Twitter, even though I got one. Uh, <laughs> so, so I, I didn't know that they were so mad. At, at her.
2: <laughs> I should have read some tweets maybe into the record because people were big mad, but I also just didn't want to, I didn't necessarily want to subject her to
12: all that. Yeah. Really help, you know? I re- really appreciated how she didn't seem very reactive to that e- aspect of it. Cause I'm sure that's a lot to go through.
2: Yeah, after we wrapped, I was thinking that maybe the thing we should be talking about, the conversation sh- we should be having, is about resilience. Because whatever you think about her and her beliefs, like, she demonstrated resilience. And uh, some of what I'm describing right now and being able to kind of put your emotional investments and an issue to the side for the sake of convincing someone is about having that a, a kind of emotional resilience. And yeah. is cancel culture is feeling maligned by your peers and your public really an issue. If you're resilient, can we really ever get away of my, minority views having the uphill battle of being shouted down? No, that's always going to be in existence in the world. So the response to that is maybe not to try to control the environment, but to help teach resilience.
12: Yeah, I've actually my families are they're all teachers, and we've talked about that a lot with like how schools are handling bullying mm. right now, and. Often, well, I mean, and often it is the case, like in the case of the school system, the bullies are usually like the kids who need the most help. Mm. Um, (laughs) But also, like, why then that's what, and my aunts were talking about that with me, just like, why aren't we teaching kids to, you know, just move on (laughs) after somebody Mm. um, insults them? You know, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't cause, you know, bullying can obviously get dangerous in some respects, but I think that that resilience in general is obviously a skill. We could all use for any number of reasons in the given point of life. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Well, thanks for your time. I hope you have a good one. Thank you, Grace. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye-bye. All right, Tom. Oh, shoot. I keep forgetting. I'm going to jump. I'm going to start jumping around a little bit in this queue. Um, But go ahead, Tom.
7: Hey, what's up? Can you hear
0: me?
2: I can. What's on your mind?
0: All right. All right. So I got my thing in notes, so I'm not rambling for too long. Uh, Okay. First note uh wonderful choice of song, "Policy of Truth" to <laughs> That, that one's
2: all been. I'll pass along the the approval.
0: All right. um Okay. So you made a comment about how your show is about like more the approach of common ground, and there's another there's another show on here, the Ben Burgess guy, right? I
7: mm-hmm. notice
0: he does a lot of the same. There's a lot of common ground talk, and what I was telling him in his call in is that you guys are like some of the few people. I can send to family members and friends and be like, oh, hey, check this out. And I rarely ever do it, but, like, I won't get, like, a nasty response back. Like, oh, what the fuck was that?
7: <laughs> uh,
0: and I, I think so much of, like, the modern online kind of left ecosphere is entirely, like, self-sustaining. It just feeds itself of like-minded people and outrage and controversy and, like, every new outrage. I mean, and obviously, you know, the right wing is great at this stuff, too, whether it's whatever historical nonsense, CRT, cancel culture. Uh, what was the next thing? Uh, Eric earlier said something about uh, what it means to be canceled, and that kind of got me thinking. We talk about cancel culture, and it's always, like, I don't mean to put it down certain people in the media, but it's always, like, these entitled college kids.
6: Like, you know, oh, I wasn't allowed
0: to say this, like, inane right-wing or liberal centrist talking point and, you know, uh, cringy blue-haired weirdos are now, like, protesting me and asking that I get kicked out or whatever stuff. Yeah, I understand, like, especially when you're young, the threat of losing access to a great education is probably scary. And I Mm -hmm. think 100% they should be allowed to espouse whatever nonsense they want. But... I think it's kind of weird. Like, nobody's talking about, like, the Starbucks employees who are being fired as, like, cancel culture. Mm -hmm. And I understand, like, you know, sometimes you need to have skin in the game for things. So not always, but at least for me, that's something that resonates because, like, I've mentioned on the call in here before, I was a part of a unionization effort where we won the election and our company just refused to come to negotiations. Mm -hmm. And we were, like, all gradually laid off or fired. You know, how convenient. Mm-hmm. But since then, I won't ever bring up politics at a workplace because I'm just simply too scared. I know the way the construction industry is. Management, especially in New York, tends to be overwhelmingly like Long Island, Staten Island, MAGA, Boomers. You know, they think Bernie Sanders is a they think like Joe Biden's a socialist. You know, absolutely mm-hmm. shit. <laughs> uh,
7: I'm
0: I'm sorry. I'm terrible at put, tying my points together. And so that reminded me. That's mm-hmm. an example of me self censoring. And I realized I self censored on your call in because mm-hmm. one of the last times I was on your call in, I think I made a comment about politicians needing to be scared or something mm-hmm. for their lives. Mm-hmm. And then the next time I called in, I made a comment about Jews running Hollywood. And so after a while, I was like, "Look, I'm getting a little too on
7: <laughs>
0: I just need to like get Tell off." Self the censor more, and Tom. <laughs> yeah sorry sorry so tom, tom, you know, tom, I, I took tom, a step tom. back i was like look tom you're you're going there baby and so like yeah you know self-censorship isn't always a bad thing and i, I kind of feel like shame based cultures tend to do well my limited experience in like you know europe and places like that where they are a little bit more i guess shame based maybe i'm maybe i'm full of it i don't know i don't know what you're talking about. so anyway look, my last question oh i'm sorry yeah no, go, I'm ahead. Sorry.
2: go ahead go ahead go ahead and wrap it up yeah
0: Okay, yeah. So, to wrap it up, I'm terrible at wrapping it up. (laughs) So, all, you know, when I was thinking about, when I was listening to your podcast and this Emma Lady, and I was thinking about, like, all this, all this, and I'm glad you did this episode. And you don't do a lot of shit on cancel culture, which is why I still subscribe to your Patreon. But all Mm -hmm. this, like, Joe Rogan hysteria and all this dumb shit. This is, like, it's, like, all culture war shit. What I've just, I've become, I've kind of realized, like, so much of consequential political discourse is run by, like, the most coddled, privileged people, like, the species has ever created, I mean, and there's just so many hit pieces, hit pieces oh my god, you know, even Jordan Peterson, oh, you know, radical leftist kicked me out of U of T, and now he's making hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I guess I, I was gonna ask you, since you're, like, one of the few people who, like, is willing, has skin in the game, is willing to kind of venture out on there. How do you? How do we like stop this like endless stupid culture war shit from just affecting the left, or is it just mm-hmm. is it just too ingrained in us? Well, here's
2: here's the problem fundamentally, and I'm not trying to call anybody out because people are you know they have they're trying to make their businesses successful and it is what it is. But I you know the reality is that people click on on the on the on, on cancel culture, people click on the grievance culture, right? In in every direction. So, if a podcaster tells you we're getting censored, the algorithm is against us. Um, you know, uh, the 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 corporate network I used to work for treated me badly, and now I've started a new thing, and they're out to get us. Let's let's help. Let's show them what's what. Like, let's I got a cancel. Let's show them what's what by you subscribing to my channel. It works, right? And I see my colleagues say these things, and it's true, they're not lying. And I and it, I see that it works, and I feel an enormous amount of pressure to say stuff like that. Ah, so to help support independent media, and the algorithm is out to get us, and we should be doing better than we should be doing. Which, you know, it's not untrue. But I feel a little uncomfortable about it. I'm I'm not gonna lie. Like, I know that at the beginning of all of my episodes, I'm supposed to be saying... You know, support independent media and subscribe, and, and I only do it at the end because that's when I remember. And when I get someone on the line, I just want to start interviewing them. And I and I'm a very bad businesswoman, <laughs> but I I I don't begrudge anybody for doing it because it it works. Nina Turner's best fundraising days, uh, for her Ohio 11th run last year were the day that Hillary Clinton jumped in the race and the day that Clyburn jumped in the race. Oh, they're out to get me! Oh, they're APAC and DMFI are raising all this money against me okay well even people who weren't that into electoralism were like well screw it they're trying to get our girl I got a defender right so part of the cancellation stuff is I think conservatives figuring out how to frame themselves as an underdog in a world where they're increased you know where they're obviously like in power <laughs> like you know, economically structurally in power and it is it is but it's not it's not a tool that they can only use like everybody can use it and everybody is using it. You know, I watch Russell Russell Brand videos. I I really like Russell Brand. I really enjoy his videos. He's one of my like top guests that I want. Russell Brand, Fran Lebowitz and a couple of others are the ones that I really 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 want. Right? I really like him. And I and I also watching his videos and he's saying, ah. Oh, help us help support this and da, da 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 and this is important and i'm like well you also are a millionaire and you have more subscribers than i could ever have and i'm like there's a part of me that's like a little resentful because i know that it works but my own issues are making me feel uncomfortable doing it but it works and people are smart to know that it works and to do it and to play those play on people's heartstrings like that so i think as long as people have incentive to need to to drive them toward a goal whether it's subscribing to somebody's patreon or clicking on their video or um, committing to their Republican party or whatever it is, you're always going to have people weaponizing or, or, or you know, the idea of being an underdog and being, being canceled and being marginalized because people like an underdog. And that's a very human phenomenon. And I don't know that that's going anywhere. I would, I just would hope that people are channeling it toward good ends. I think it's good to click and subscribe to breaking points or whatever that, you know, show that ideologically aligns with me. I might not feel this, and I, you know, I obviously don't feel the same way about Jordan Peterson saying I'm canceled. So, you know, buy my expensive seminar, you know.
0: One hundred percent, I agree with you. That's why I'm silent. Sorry.
2: Okay. Well, thank you, Tom. And I'm going to start hopping around the line because I know that people have been frustrated that if you don't get in there immediately, you don't get in there. And we've been talking about a lot of trans issues, and I have been rightly criticized for not bringing enough trans people into the conversation with me. So let me get, where'd she go? Uh, And also I forget every time if it's Rika or Rika. So I apologize for that. Is it Rika? You're up, unmute yourself. And tell me how to pronounce your name again and what's on your mind. You're unmuted, but I can't hear you. Why is that? OK, it's still I still can't hear you, but if you drop, I'm going to bring someone else up and then get back in line and I will bring you up again because this happens occasionally. I won't forget you. OK, I'm skipping around a bit. I'm skipping around a bit. Um, let's hear from Anne. I've not seen you before in here, Anne. What's on your mind? Unmute yourself. The button is in the bottom right. Looks like a little microphone or corn cob.
13: Hi, Bree. There you go. Hi, Anne. Hi, so I'm about your age. I'm 37. And as far as college back then, you know, the worst thing that I ever saw was normal Finkelstein being booed down mm. by a group of Zionists, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and And to me, it seems that we were all rallying against the Iraq war. And it seems that we've lost the left has become fragmented mm-hmm. and there are all these these issues but there's there's no talk of syria yemen and I, I wonder if some of that is related to to a loss of a real moral imperative that is almost that come, came from like left wing connected to uh, to to the Religion, which I, you know, I'm not very religious, but it seemed to have that power in South America, and and we've kind of, I I, I think that might be a part of it, where there there's no b- belief in redemption, belief in forgiveness, mm. belief in, mm-hmm. uh, anyhow. So that, that those were some of my my thoughts. Yeah, so
2: to that last point, I'm desperate to have Liz Brunegon to have a really fulsome conversation about this. Because I think that she's one of the people who's written most persuasively on this. Also, my colleague from Current Affairs, uh, Vanessa, has written a really good piece about what redemption looks like in the context of Me Too. I think she wrote it after Louis C.K. To your first point, um, which was also good and now I've forgotten...
13: Uh, just just about the there there really was no cancel culture and I I oh, it also yeah yes. you know, related uh, so, to social media wasn't a thing yes really at so, that time either. Yeah,
2: Facebook wasn't in my freshman year. Uh, so dating myself, we didn't really like we had phones that could text, but we didn't really rely on them like that. I barely ever checked my email. You know, they gave us like a Ethernet cord when we logged in. It was a different world, guys. When we when we Got into our dorms, it was a different world. I do think that the Iraq war was a unifying um, thing that was going on, a uh, feature of the time. The cynical part of my brain, though, doesn't think that we were all unified be- behind it because of some moral imperative or some deep left tradition that was more dominant in America at the time. I think it was Bush's war, and just like the, the media is aligned now behind Ukraine— um, the media then was very much aligned behind stirring everybody's, you know, being anti-war because it meant being anti-Bush. You know what I mean? I think there's a world where, uh, it was, uh, Howard Dean's war <laughs> or whatever, yeah. you know, things have gone a different way as John Kerry's war or whatever. And, uh, the media would have been supportive of it and many people in college would have been supportive of it. Perhaps. I mean, yeah. maybe that's dark. I'm sorry. Yeah,
13: no, no, I, I, I can see, I can see that, and I, but it, it felt like, it, it was also unpopular to be on the left, and now, now it seems to be, to be popular, and there's also sort of an intellectual laziness where the rewards are just short term and personal rather than than mm. long term, and anyhow, that's those are some thoughts, and thank you for taking calls and and being present and I will, I will hang up now. Thank you. Yeah, of
2: course. No worries. I mean, I, I keep reflecting on college cause I'm almost embarrassed about the extent to which I was kind of not political, but I didn't think of myself as not political. It wasn't like there was someone else more political than me. And I was like, Oh, I, that's not my bag. Like that's their thing. My thing is acapella. No, it, I felt like I was, I felt like I was relatively political, but like the world was just not as political or or the valences of it were just narrower like and was saying where we were all just on one big team and we didn't like bush and we didn't like the war and like that was kind of it like john stewart was good (laughs) you know like that was just kind of it it just wasn't that sophisticated um racism was bad (laughs) you know homophobia was bad but also everyone still said a lot of homophobic stuff all the time and you know I, I don't know. Maybe I was like just bad and not woke, and at, and not that left institution. And maybe someone who was at like Wesleyan or Berkeley or something had a different experience. But I'd be happy to hear from people in that situation. Okay, let's try this again, Rika.
14: Hey, Brie, can you hear me?
2: There you go. All right.
14: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, yes, it is Rika. Okay, um, excellent. Yeah. So I. Um, i if you if you don't mind i would i do not want to relitigate the like relative degrees of transphobia or whatever on sure
7: it's you're not speaking
14: for all trans people you can talk about whatever you want to talk about i mean and to be clear i like i said in my previous one just real quickly i actually like the podcast i i like listening to a lot of things on it and i just you know, disagree with some things that come up every once in a while. Go figure. Fair um, enough, it's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> what I was super, um, I, I, first off, again, I'm not. This is probably the extent of social media in my life. Is like this call in. <laughs> oh, so,
2: God bless um, I like, you.
14: I know, right? Right. I feel again for my mental health. It's great. Um, highly recommend a cleanse, and I but when you when i watched the video today i was instantly teleported to college and i i went to school at like a liberal arts small private college in the middle of nowhere um in um in michigan and uh this whole idea of like canceling uh culture and canceling and protests around speech and stuff like that it was just like you know came rushing back and definitely was a part of a group of people who were trying to oust some people in like student senate for like for really really horrible shit that they said on like twitter and stuff like that so like
2: do you remember what it was
14: oh yeah oh yeah yeah. it was like i'm i don't i like (laughs) i don't want to go like too far into it um but what i what i want to say is that what your call gave, gave me pause. What I've been thinking about since that moment is like um, the, I think we're experiencing a lot of different conversations about different things all at the same time related to cancel culture. There's like the choice to engage in a tactic of like trying to shut down someone who is a political agent. Right. And that is a, from my perspective, a legitimate political tactic,
6: Mm -hmm. right? Like
14: I think that we have the right to engage in protest activity that can disrupt and challenge people who are really out here trying to create movements and or a larger political project um, to uh, encourage right-wing extremism and beyond. So I I I think that is a conversation to be had, but I think that is also very very different from my perspective than some people feeling. They're, I'm not saying there's not a relationship, but I do think it is different that people like your your guest who feel inhibited or have felt or have seen other people um, in their class and spoken to other people who feel insecure or self-conscious or like the panopticons behind their brain you know like (laughs) like that then and to say something um that would cause ire or social ostracization social ostracization from their peers and I, I I do think there is just a meaningful difference and I think people keep and I think there's political interest in wanting to complete these conversations mm-hmm. um, in a broad media landscape. But I and I think what was difficult in in listening was that I like sympathize with with her um, feelings of of and of witnessing people who feel stifled and wanting to have those conversations because part of what I loved about it being in my undergrad, despite how difficult it was was like having that freedom to really go in on a conversation right and to really like dive in and get at it and I still think to a large extent people do i i i I understand that people might feel like there there's a lot more at stake in terms of their social lives, but like there is i i I don't know of a professor or of an experience of like a professor who has like you know, totally like flunked people for saying something that was difficult or, you know, challenging in their class, right? Like I I, in the school that I went to, um, in fact it was like kind of the opposite. Like a lot of people who probably maybe needed to self censor more (laughs) (laughs) felt like they had like a lot of free reign to really say some off the wall shit without a lot of evidence or logic Mm -hmm. to their Mm -hmm. arguments. So um, I, I just feel like um, in these conversations, what it was making me think of was besides nostalgia for um, a moment in time where we were all like protesting this, this person um, at my school. But just I do think there is a meaningful difference in the conversations we're trying to have around like whether or not a particular kind of tactic works in all circumstances and whether or not people just feel uncomfortable um, saying something out loud. Um, and yeah,
2: yeah, I really like that distinction between trying to, you know, marginalize a political actor who has real power,
9: yes, um,
2: or expose yes. them for what they really believe, you know, and you know, some of these interpersonal disputes. Ultimately, I am curious, and I, I'm not asking this because I'm like out of pure like interest or anything. Sure. But I'm interested in this idea that, like, you, you raise this example of a person in the student council who said awful things.
14: Oh, no, it was, and... like, it was so bad, Brie. I mean, it was like... The most racist, sexist. But I
2: feel like we need to hear it. Like, yeah, yeah, and and here's 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 why. Like, it was the same thing with Emma. It's like, yeah, I I, I like you, and so I want to believe you, and I think you're smart, and you're making good points, and so I'm like nodding along. But a part of me is like, well, this is how cancel culture happens, right? Because I take at word that this person who I'm never going to meet and know, obviously, but is is racist or. Bigoted in these ways,
7: right? And right, right, right,
2: let's right. say that they were a real person. Say it's a celebrity. Say you're here telling me that Kirsten Dunst is a bigot. Yeah. And in real life, I'd be like, ooh, really, girl? Like, yeah. I never liked yeah. the way she, you know, right. was, and you know, <laughs> the cheerleader movie, anyway. Like, I wasn't even rooting for her. I was Team Gabrielle. You know. <laughs> so like there, there's a, in, in, in daily conversation, I wouldn't question yeah. you. I'd be like, mm-hmm. and that's, and I think that's part of the problem. Like we yeah, go was, by what our friends say and yeah. on our Twitter community, somebody says somebody's a bigot. So we all are like, yeah, huh? totally. Well,
7: well,
14: so here, here's, so I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a little bit more I guess about the story. So there, so the student though, that ascended to the student Senate power was also like implicated. He, he had like burned, like, a gay pride flag like behind Mm. this campus paraded the charred remnants in the dorm room Mm. i had like a gay in the closet at the time gay roommate and um who felt very unsafe and then then the twitter account that this person was using like was used for like the campaign for his campaign at one point to get into office and then the comments were like explicitly about like racial minorities and groups mm-hmm. and stuff, and so I, I, yeah, I, w- I would, I totally get what you're saying. The evidence absolutely matters, and trust me, when we were organizing, we had printed the receipts on it. We were
7: like, this, okay, okay, so this, this, is, this is, is great. It.
2: This is great. Okay, so let's <laughs> yeah. ask this question because another yeah. question that's been put on the table is, what does it mean to be canceled, and what are we advocating for? for so sure, in this sure. instance. I presume that this person ran some kind of election to get in this position, and yeah, that these yeah. facts about their burning the pride flag and saying these bigoted, racist comments as well were not in the open record when they won this election.
14: That is absolutely accurate. Yes. Okay. So what happened was, is they the the school had kind of like tried to keep it hush because this person was from like a very elite family, very wealthy family. Um, and a lot of students like, were like, you know, basically like there needs to be some disciplinary action that knew of what was happening, knew, of, knew what was going on and had more intimate knowledge of like who the person was, but it was a small enough school where were like, people found out very quickly, mm-hmm. very, very quickly. I mean, like two, when you have 2000 people at your school. Like, people.
7: Mm.
2: Out. So, okay. So my follow up question is, was there any kind of like honor code already in the school charter about student behavior and what was accepted. Yes,
14: yes, yes there was. And to some extent. So there wasn't about like specific hate speech or anything language like that, but there was an honor code. Um and which is what so so the incident around the gay pride flag happened like before they before they ran. Then they ran and got accepted and then these tweets came out, right? So the group that I was organizing with, we were responding to the tweets. And Mm -hmm. um, uh, so that we used that, we were using that and to basically say like, this behavior is not representative of like, and is unbecoming, et cetera. Like we like use that honor code as a way to kind of like target this individual. And, you know, like, again, like I like, Student senate in the great grand scheme of things you know on hindsight we can like have a conversation about that you know in terms of whether or not it was worth it but what you were saying around like you were doing a lot of work when you were responding to this like national um this these emails I got out about this person in your in law school right like mm-hmm. and and how taxing that was because mm-hmm. there was no there was no institutional accountability mm-hmm. and people were Right. So, and then all of a sudden, that piece just like resonated deeply with me in terms of like a lot of times in these circumstances too, people are trying to figure out how to deal with their with with very limited resources. By the way, in terms of Mm -hmm. energy, time, right to like deal with these problems, and they're not the most elegant in the not most elegant way, right? I think one of the things that I can recall that happened too was you know this individual like they it was it wasn't like they, they it wasn't like they were just like oh there and keeping quiet like they were on student senate like trying to take money away from all these other underrepresented organizations and groups to try to consult like he was like actively part of like trying to diminish like some of the progress that students had made did, it did this
2: like. person have enough allies because i presume there's you know he's not or they're not like unilaterally you know, able to affect student policy. Did they have enough allies on the board to yes. be able to do those things?
14: Yes, <laughs> that's the problem. And part of it was because, part of it was because there were a lot of like moderate kind of people who were like, oh, he's a good guy. He just has like these like, you know, difference of opinion kind of things. It was like that kind of attitude towards this person. And it was, it, now- did everyone like him as a person? No. Like there were still a group of people who did not like him, but there were a lot of people who were like, kind of not who, who it was. I mean, student sense. So a lot of it was like performative anyway, but like, there were just a bunch of people who were, um, not taking his perspective and his agenda seriously, you know? And yeah, so
2: this is what I'm struggling with now because as a human who agrees with you substantively, I want to yeah. I want to say if I'm the dean, you know, screw this guy, you're kicked off the council. You know, you're violating our school charter yada yada yada. The part of me that's trying to come up with some ideologically consistent principles right now is asking myself what would I think if this were a, I would what I would call a more conservative campus, although obviously, you know, maybe Emma would disagree. UVA or something, Ole Miss, mm-hmm. whatever. Right,
14: right. Really. And
2: someone on the student council had burned an American flag in a protest. Right. I am in no way saying that's equivalent. Totally. But totally. like, what do we like?
14: No, totally. I listen. I am not here to like fully defend everything at every point principle of what I did. You know, like I definitely um, think that there were flaws in some of the things that we did and some of the arguments that we were making and kind of our overstated reactions. I think. Part of it was the context at the time was there were all these like gay suicides that happened mm-hmm. as well. Like this was like 20, the, mm-hmm. between 20, 2008 and 2012. So there was like a moment a year, when there was a shit ton of gay suicides that mm-hmm. happened across the nation and everyone was being affected by it locally too. So I think like th- that, that's the thing is that, you know, hindsight in 2020, I probably would have, if my, my older self would probably go to, and say like, is this worth it? Is this really worth it in the long run? You know, all the time and energy and thinking more, you know, clearly about like, what, what is, what is the ultimate goal? And are you, are you, is it it really going to be worth all this time and energy against someone who ultimately isn't, doesn't really have that. Great of power in the great grand scheme of the world, maybe at the school he has a little bit of power, and you're all playing monopoly with it or whatever but like mm. it's but i I think what my larger point though is like i that experience, whether or not it was right or wrong, the act of protesting someone around that, and like the as a tactic right we've seen that used with like you mentioned Milo Yanopolis right. And how he was being canceled at all of these schools and stuff like that, you know, and mm-hmm. um, or being shut down. And I, I have to admit, I was when that was happening, I was so sympathetic to that, not just because of this previous experience or whatever. But, you know, I felt at the time when that was happening, it was like there was it was so clear. It was so clear to me, at least, that he was part of like a, a organized fascist movement that was surging between like Lauren Southern and like Canada, you know, like it just seemed like there was this whole political yeah. thing that was happening, you know? I mean,
2: and there was, but also, so around that time I started my podcast journey oh, okay. <laughs> and my friend Joe and I, who has appeared on bad faith, started our podcast, Bodie someone's wrong on the internet. Mm-hmm. And we did an episode on Milo. And I, at the time, my feeling was that the kind of, he was able to get more juice out of claiming he was being canceled than he was being effectively shut down. Sure. And ultimately, you know, what ended up hurting him was his like saying these sympathetic things about pedophilia. Mm -hmm.
7: And I think Mm -hmm. that was
2: like, I mean, there was always this uneasy alliance between him and the right with all of the homophobia that exists there. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it felt to me like this was like a bridge that, that was the tipping point for them. Like they could like kind of, hold their nose and use them as a token, the same way they do Candace Owens and everybody else. Right. But the second, you know, he crossed a line. I mean, as, you know, pedophilia is everybody's line, but, like, he crossed a, a line that already they kind of probably associated negative stereotypes with him as a gay man, and, like, that they, like, threw him under the bus immediately. So it wasn't even us that did it. Like, it wasn't even the left protesting that did it. Right. It was right. him, his own, like, sticking his foot in, in his mouth, and also the pre-existing like, tenuous relationship between him and that his chosen community. yeah. And I mean, I think that's right and true. So again, I'm in this position where it's like intellectually, like he sucked, like emotionally, he sucked emotionally. I too have gone to the place where I'm like, I have to fight back against this because I take a maximalist view of all of the harms that are befalling this group. You know, it's not about me on campus anymore. It's about all of these gay kids who've committed suicide. It's not about me.
14: Right, and right, like,
2: right. Black Lives Matter anymore. It's, you know, or or me and me and my racist professor anymore saying things it's, it's about Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and this, you know, 2 million people in jail and all of these other kinds of things. Mm
14: -hmm. And it's
2: not like emotionally incorrect. Right. But I do feel like that I I have observed people having these arguments and I've seen the silencing effect, Mm
6: -hmm. you know,
2: like I have seen the person I agree with start talking about the huge consequences of the systemic racism and the person I don't agree with kind of get quiet and look a little frustrated that they feel like they can't say, they can't make their point anymore because who's going to argue with institutional racism. In fact, yeah. even to bring back Talia, there was this moment, you know, that we clipped and stuff where, you know, she asked if I, you know, it implies that I want to hold hands and kiss Nazis on the cheek. And Oof. I say very yeah. slowly to her, that. Yeah. are Oof. you saying to me, a black woman that I want to hold hands with Nazis and kiss, kiss them on the cheek? There was a part of me I I knew that in that moment I had the power to say, "I'm black. Back the fuck up." Do you know what I mean? Like, I know. (laughs) I like I knew that I could I could play this game, and play this like identity politics hierarchy game, and really win. You know what I mean? Like really dunk in that moment. Yeah. And I felt the responsibility of that knowledge, and that even though I was very frustrated in that interview. That mm-hmm. my credibility was on the line, and it also was going to completely shut down our ability to have any kind of productive conversation, which I was still hoping for at that time.
14: Yeah, yeah. I I feel like there is so the, I, in the chat I rec there's this book um, called Joyful Militancy by um, I'm blanking on the author's name, but I put it in the the live chat. And I they in that book they really dive in and talk about like some of the toxic culture within specific communities of the left I mean specifically like anarchist communities mm. um, and but in general you can kind of see it in like just radical leftist spaces in general but um they talk about kind of like this desire and need to take a, a the most militant stance mm-hmm. against the perceived um, wretched evils of the world and those actors that are you know manifesting it. And how that type of posturing trickles into creating a culture of either with us or against us, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, How that impacts people. And so that book really, not to dodge the conversation, but I I, I do think that book is really insightful around, like, balancing
2: that. What's it called again?
14: um, Joyful Militancy.
13: Joyful
2: Militancy.
14: Yeah, yeah. the, The, you know, the... I guess footnotes of it is really just like we it's, it's kind of like through practice um, we kind of figure out like where those lines are and that we do run risks of like taking militant, when we take militant action together and, or militant hardline stances, we do run that risk of alienating a large chunk of people. Um, The, the, the the thing that comes after is repair. Like mm-hmm. there is there is this practice of needing to figure out and attention to like when these rifts come up, when these divides come up around maybe like a small group of people want to take that militant action or want to have that militant stance for whatever reason, right? And the majority of people don't, or maybe it's the majority and then a small people, group of people don't. Like what does that, repair process look like and yeah yeah so um but highly recommend that book recommend
2: thank that. you for that that this has all been very insightful i'm gonna look into it um and thank you as always
14: likewise thanks
2: i'm gonna keep hopping around a little um let's hear from reverend edmund uh will it will it yeah sorry i just butchered that i'm sorry how are you doing reverend
15: Oh, I'm doing well, Brianna. <laughs> Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, of course. What's on your mind tonight?
15: Well, I mean, you know, it's cancel culture. I was before all that. I mean, I was in college from 81 to 85. Mm. I mean, the, we didn't have computers. There was a little bit of that. I mean, certainly around kind of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, there was a lot of controversy and tumult and people came to speak. Mm. Uh, but I mean, I only only thing I, re- I remember a few things that were kind of odd. I spent my high school years in a Catholic seminary. So I got to Rutgers in 81, and Mm. I remember sitting in Psychology 101 and the professor going on about how, like, the Catholic Church was responsible for, like, all the loss of intelligence in the world due to the Dark Ages. I'm like Mm. – I I was a little bit (laughs) taken back. I said, well, I think it might have been the fall of the Western Empire and various invasions. And, you know, if you were in Britannia, I'm trying to say, it was, you know, pretty collapsing, but, you know, on the Italian peninsula – I guess what shocked me in that moment, and I'm not really picking on him, and I'm not trying to say, "Well, I was this, I was, I was victimized," but just the failure to have subtlety and nuance mm. in conversation.
7: Mm-hmm.
15: Like, I, I mean, here I was I was thinking I was I was leaving the Catholic seminary, I was going to a, a large university. There was going to be this, the intellectual vistas would be unbound, mm. and I began to feel. You know, like I read the end of like Animal Farm, you know, the humans and the pigs, you can't tell who's who. Mm -hmm. I just Mm seem to encounter this new type of dogmatism that I was running away from, you know. That's so
2: interesting. Yeah.
15: Yeah. It was just kind of, it it sort of stays with me more dispositionally. And I'm not trying. I remember when I think it was Phil Berrigan came and he was saying, you know, he was talking about the end of World War II and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I just tried to suggest, you know, I don't know what I would have done. I mean, Truman, it's not clear he knew the Japanese were going to surrender. It's not clear that, you know, I just tried to once again say, hey, you know, this may have to be unpacked with more historical nuance. Brianna, after that, I was branded the right-wing guy on campus. Like, I'm like, what? You know, I just... And, you know, maybe I didn't handle it well in my communication, but I was just trying to say, look, you know, there's let's talk about this. And that.
2: Yeah, that's so funny to me, because I have the I kind of have the opposite example where I had a con law professor who was basically basically made your your point, uh, which Mm -hmm. a guy who I consider to be a liberal. I I think he would identify himself as very liberal, uh, who, when we were talking about Karamatsu, basically said, you know, it was it was a reasonable decision. It was an understandable decision given the time. Yeah, And so there's, there's many sure. different, okay. there's, yeah. you know, there are objections. So first of all, there was no objection from the class as a whole. I personally objected and talked about it later with like friends. And so I don't want it, This is not really like a cancel culture conversation because like I didn't feel silenced. I just like didn't feel like talking about it in class and raising my hand and like, what? What am I going to fight about this? Like, what am I doing here? And but then I, I was frustrated by it. Uh, um, and I could have gone, I remember standing, I actually did go up to him after class and standing in line to like talk to him about it and there was a line and I remember feeling like it was going to be a public conversation in front of all these other students in line and I didn't feel equipped and I it was a wait and I had to go somewhere mm-hmm. else and I just gave up.
7: Mm-hmm. So
2: I guess, I guess part of my frustration in this article that I wrote about these quote unquote microaggressions in law school was largely about the fact that I think that these kinds of moments are going to come up and mm-hmm. teachers need to be able to talk about them with more nuance and historical perspective than they are so even though i would disagree with you i think the point is that no one should be making these kinds of statements like we should we should all be not saying these things in a conclusory way we should be saying them in a way that's very informed and you can't get into subjects like this that have so much um historical relevance you know we are again and again in moments where we're gonna have to judge whether or not you know people would say there there might come, become a day where people will say and people do say frankly nine eleven you know the response to nine eleven was justified given what we knew we believe that weapons of mass destruction of- we uh, believe uh, right so uh, I think it's important to have the full conversation and people not have making these conclusory statements which is to your first point which is what I've learned in this job. And be working on a campaign, talking to people who are so different, who hold so many weird clusters of beliefs. You'll meet a Bernie person who's pro-life. You'll meet a Bernie person who, you know, veterans, all these kinds of things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I have learned, and I'm in the process of learning how not to talk as though everybody agrees with me. How not to assume that everybody agrees with me. I remember being on the campaign trail once in South Carolina, I believe, with some surrogates, you know, young black women. Mm-hmm. And we went into a black beauty shop and she goes in like balls to the wall, starts giving this like what she thinks is a good Bernie pitch. And she looks around and guesses me the conclusion that these women in this store are very invested in abortion rights and starts immediately talking about how you should be a right, have a right to get a, an abortion, dah, 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 like going on and on. And I'm looking at them and it's clear to me that everyone in the room is uncomfortable. And I think they're mm-hmm. uncomfortable for two reasons. One, because there was this kind of presumption. Maybe they thought that as black women, they should be wanting to abort their babies, and even if they that you know they did or have or are appreciative of that right, there is something a little uncouth about presuming mm-hmm. that someone yes. because they're black a woman in a certain socioeconomic status is going to be the one getting the abortions. Even though the mm-hmm. woman who was talking was black, like I felt like they were like, "Why are you acting like I'm basically in a woman of ill repute up in here?" Like a yeah. little offended. Yeah. And I think the other thing was that it's just a sensitive subject. And Not necessarily what they would have prioritized politically, and a better approach would have been to say to ask them what's on their mind, what are their biggest concerns
7: mm-hmm.
2: and that that is the approach that I take when I'm on the campaign trail, but not this young woman who is perhaps less ex, you know experienced in these things and had a different you know attitude. And I think that we it is incumbent on us. It's not about whether we agree or disagree, but it's this learning relearning how not to presume. Everyone is already on your side so that people do feel a certain openness to say what they really do believe. And in a campaign context, you've got to get someone to tell you the truth about what they believe and what's motivating them so that you can speak to those issues.
15: Exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely true. I mean, you've got to sort of tease out all these subtleties and nuances. I mean, I remember once I was taking a course on the black church with Ronald Bethel, and I remember, I, I, I'm in the back of the class, I'm like, well... I think the most effective platform and the one that's really spot on, if you read the Black Panthers platform, and it's only a few pages, It's a lot of it's just basic social democracy that I agree with. Healthcare, jobs, anti-imperialism. And everyone's like, I, I... I I still struggle with the idea of appropriation. I'm like, I'm not appropriating it. I, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Like, isn't appropriation more like fashion and style? And uh, well, I don't know. I think I, I think the I got article I mind.
2: ever wrote was about cultural appropriation, and this is another place where I think there's lefty overreach, and so you should definitely Google my name and the words cultural okay. appropriation. It's incredible. I will do that
15: magazine. now. <laughs> I will definitely do that, but I, you know, I, I know there's other people who want to talk, so I don't want to monopolize, but well, it was good yeah.
2: talking to you, but it's yeah. nice to see new faces and I'm enjoying kind of going and picking through a little bit here. Uh, let's hear from Tammy.
6: Hello. Can you hear me?
2: I can. What's on your mind tonight, Tammy?
6: Oh, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I really appreciate how much time you give to um, us ordinary folks <laughs> being up for talking to us. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. You're um, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you we'll, we'll see um i actually i just um wanted to weigh in from the perspective um of an academic who um teaches about you know culture and society i'm um, uh in the area of music in my case mm. um you know in some of my classes um i, I don't think i want to call this cancel culture necessarily because i think it's a little bit different but it definitely relates to what um your interviewee emma said and what she was talking about in her article um so it's interesting to me, first of all, that identity politics from the US has had um, strong import in other places wholesale, and some of the things about it are actually very specifically US-related. So I think it's, it's – um, sometimes there are some really helpful things about it that we find useful, and sometimes people just say things because they've heard them on Twitter or read them on Twitter and don't fully understand how maybe that isn't the best framework for us to understand what goes on here. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I've had a couple of different experiences where I, I try really, really hard. Like I'm not in an elite university. It's not the first choice in Australia or even in Melbourne for, you know, the elite or the children of the elite or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of the students where I work uh, are the first in their families to attend university. It's a very mm-hmm. diverse cohort on M- on almost every diversity access imaginable. Um, So I've had, you know, conservative religious students walk out of my class on music video because I was showing videos that had too much open sexual display in them. Mm. Um, And in the very same class, I had really strong disagreements between, you know, a student from Botswana who repeatedly said he didn't agree with feminism. Mm. And didn't agree with the charge that hip hop that he liked was misogynistic from Mm. another student who was a white middle class Australian gender non-binary person. Mm. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because both of those students told me later that they were incredibly grateful that I had insisted that they debate the topic rather than, you know, that I swept over it or shutting it down or,
7: mm-hmm.
6: um, you know, whatever the, like that it was getting too difficult and that let's just move on. I didn't do that. I like insisted that they defend their positions. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and, but I've had a contrasting experience where I've been, you know, told that I should have put a content warning. Um, mm-hmm. before I even understood what a content warning was because like Rika, <laughs> I'm not on Twitter or Facebook so I was quite late on the uptake. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was, t- I was told by a student that I should have um, put a content warning before showing them a video of Billie Holiday performing Strange Fruit. Um, <laughs> and it was interesting because so, you know, the point of me showing the video was that like it was a music analysis exercise with a methodological purpose, I wanted to illustrate that you can point out things about sound and aesthetics, but they don 't necessarily mean a lot on their own if you don 't understand the background to a song or musician or genre, mm. so yeah, the entire point was to direct them to seek out historical geographical socio political particulars of the mm-hmm. music of their choices and understand like yeah the significance of what they were studying through those lenses and this student who wanted this content warning was, was white. I don't know. Maybe that's relevant. I don't know.
7: Mm -hmm.
6: Um, And, and it was, was, I was genuinely confused because first of all, I hadn't gotten to the point of why I was playing the video. Mm -hmm. Like had they waited, they would have seen that I was not showing the video in order to promote historical atrocities against black people in the U S you know, that was the Um, argument
2: that by playing a song critical of lynching,
6: they were, you were promoting lynching <laughs> Lynch. well the, 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 I guess like I didn't get to the I idea I think that the point was rather that it was you know potentially triggering like that was kind of the overarching thing is like don't show us this because it's trauma mm. you know
2: I mean it is um, trauma my like, life is traumatic
6: <laughs> yeah and then but the other of course thing is that it was Billie Holiday herself doing the performance it wasn't like I was showing a white singer appropriating it or some kind of bastardization of it like why does that require a content warning? I, I mean, I thought I was missing something. Like I was genuinely like, I, I don't know what's in the zeitgeist right now. Cause I'm not, am um, in touch with, you know, contemporary culture, the way that my students are. So like, what am I missing here? Um, mm. and then I guess the third point is like, do we not teach students about bad things in history because mm. they're bad and might trigger them? Like that's terrifying.
2: <laughs> well, that's what these CRT bills are right now. Ironically, it's like the very political faction that T- called everybody snowflakes and that they were overly sensitive. Are, the, right. the thrust of a lot of these CRT laws are not to tell them anything about American history that's triggering to, to specifically white people. <laughs> you know things about racism, things about lynching, things about you know they, they just don't want to. They don't want to teach those things. Like that's the way the laws are written. And I don't know. It's it's interesting to me. I like I understand the political project of Republicans trying to pass those laws kids many of whom are liberal left progressive advocating for some of this stuff very much confuses me that's part of why i wanted to have emma on i know that some people are like why even bother but like i don't get opportunities to talk to seniors in college every day you know i'm genuinely curious about how they're feeling about this stuff and this kind of brings me back to my point about resilience like, I don't mm. want to be one of those, like, second wave feminists who's like, I had to get molested by my boss, so why are you complaining so much, little girl? Like, buck up. We all had to do it. Like, I don't want to be like that. Like, just buck up. And things are hard, and you don't, shouldn't have to have a content warning, like a trigger warning. Like, I think it's – there's no skin off my back. There's no problem for, okay, to be able to say, we're talking about sexual assault today. I know that might be difficult for, for some folks, just a heads up. You know, mm. like, that's – I have no problem with that. However, there, this yes. does seem to be something different, which is, I don't know. I, I don't yeah. know. Like you have a syllabus, right? Like it's not like this is unexpected. Mm. We're talking, we're going to, we're going to listen to a Billie Holiday
6: song today. Right, right. Well, I mean, that's the thing as well is that I have a, a colleague um, in a former institution I worked in overseas who just ha- essentially puts a content warning at the start of his entire course and just says this applies to everything <laughs> Right. like FYI there might be some things in here that won't be pleasant right or, or that whatever like um are potentially challenging to you know to face whatever it might be mm. um and yeah but like I mean as an academic based in the humanities and arts and social sciences I now self-censor and I'm I'm the reason I'm fearful is because our students are you know with the neoliberal university seen as paying customers and Mm. if that particular paying customer before even knowing what the point of me playing that video was left the class early and went and told university management that there's a racist teacher they'd like to complain about um, it's their word against mine and there's plenty of evidence in the way that my institution treats its academic staff that Mm. you know student customers are um, always or you know at least mostly right yeah. Um, so it's, so it's, it's scary to me on, on that level. And, um, you know, I, I'm also a very fortunate person to have, uh, like a permanent contract and I'm in a position where I can say things and probably not lose my job immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are lots and lots of, uh, casualized staff, teaching staff who would be just would never put themselves on the line because they're so afraid of just not getting a job next semester, you know, and that's yeah. not good either.
2: And that was supposed to be the whole point of tenure was that in these academic institutions, you want your professors to be super free to say all the things. Mm. Um, Well, for one, I just want to say that you sound like a very good, you sound like a very good professor. (laughs) Well, I look, I try. (laughs) (laughs) Like it sounds like your students are very lucky to have you. The, the, this, this issue of. Young people and obviously some old people too. Feeling like the fact of their discomfort should be a reason not to discuss something. Like the point of a trigger warning should be to be able to steal yourself against what's coming, to maybe not come to class that day if it's, if it's that serious for you, but not to stop the lesson from going forward. You know, I I remember like, I'm I'm so conflicted about this because I don't know if it just changed a lot as a person or if it's circumstantially difficult, it's circumstantially different, different. But I remember in law school in particular, feeling so overwhelmed by the cumulative BS that I felt I had to experience in class. You know, if you had asked me in 2011, I would have been like, oh, it was all nonstop microaggressions and I'm very put upon. Like I was very frustrated. And I wrote this article. I, I thought about actually posting this paper to Patreon because it, it, it really detailed and detailed catalogs all of this stuff in the in level of spe- specificity that I really wanted from um, Emma and didn't get. So I can, I can, I can like back up the things that happened, but if you were to ask me now or then what I wanted to go down, like how I wanted it to go down differently, it's not that I didn't want to be there or I didn't want to be in class. It's that I wanted, I guess, I wanted the professors to make space for the obvious tension that was in the room so often and to provide more historical context that didn't make it seem like, I don't know, like Everything was so sensitive. You know, it's law. Everything is just – I remember being in criminal law and we we had a – we were talking about a case. We were talking about provocation and the idea that, like, if you did or said something that incited an emotional reaction and then that person caused you harm, then the charges would be mitigated by the fact that you provoked them. So you're not innocent. But like if you, the the prototypical example is if you come home and a guy is sleeping with your wife, it's always a guy sleeping with your wife. (laughs) Um, And there's a knife on the counter and you take it and you lunge at him and you end up killing him. Then you might get a lower, you know, it might, you might not be charged with like first degree murder. It might be a a lower charge because of provocation. And one of the art, one of the cases that we read was about a guy, a black guy. I think he was a sailor or something. Who went into a bar the night that MLK had been assassinated? And there were some white guys there that were like inward, inward, MLK deserved it, blah, blah, blah. Tensions were high. <laughs> and he they ended up getting a bar fight and one of the white guys dies. And the the the, the court said that, that didn't count as provocation. You know, someone fucking your wife in the eyes of the law, which is deeply biased and stupid, is real is a real reason to get mad antagonizing a black man and calling him the N where the night Martin Luther King is assassinated is not provocation. Okay. So we kind of like breeze through this and in in law school, you're kind of just learning, you're like internalizing the rules because you're going to have to apply them down the line. And there's no real, there was no real space in the conversation to talk about like how subjective the law is, how this is an example of how our legal system is so biased toward the hegemonic view of society and human beings and all of these things And it wasn't a big deal. I didn't go home and cry about it. I didn't like write a letter to the dean saying that professor so-and-so needs to be canceled. Like I actually really liked professor so-and-so. It wasn't even like a personal issue. But I do remember a million and one little instances like that through law school. And I feel like my experience just would have been better. And all of our cumulative educational experiences would have been better if there had just been that space for those conversations in the classroom. And I don't, I don't, I am torn because I don't want to validate a kind of a cancellation impulse. At the same time, there are things that are coming up when Emma talks that resonate with me from the left, you know?
6: Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the things that I do is I I try to um, play a kind of moderating role myself. Like I see that as part of my role. I'm not saying like um, you know, I, I try not to police people's language and stuff, but I do moderate the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, you know, I'm very upfront about, you know, well, we 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 want to have these open conversations, but we don't really want them to get personal or inflammatory. Mm-hmm. We don't, um, you know, we we want to remember that the people who we're talking to might have something in their life that could make their perspective legitimately different from ours and Mm -hmm. potentially like we need to remain open to that and that we don't know all the perspectives (laughs) um like i try and you know do everything i can to make it um you know for one of a better phrase a safe space for everyone to actually do that without feeling threatened or like oppressed or you know um but i know i completely recognize what you're saying it is it it's it's really difficult um, and like you said earlier, like the lines are drawn in all sorts of arbitrary places, depending on what people believe is too much free speech or <laughs> whatever it might yeah. be. I mean, mm.
2: part, part of it is also that I felt like I was willing to say stuff, especially by the end of law school, I had gotten my confidence up. But sometimes mm. it was like, I don't always want it. It felt like a responsibility that I didn't feel like I had necessarily signed up for. So in the anecdote yeah. I told in the, in the podcast about the guy who was arguing that people should move in next know, people who move in next door should get, um, sorry, if, if there's some housing policy, that integration policy that has black people moving next to you and your housing value declines as a consequence of, you know, racism, that white people should be compensated for it. You know, what I might have liked to have happened, it's like, he's allowed to say that it's fine. I'm not going to turn into dust, but the, I wish the professor and not me, I wish the professor had been equipped to say, to ask some questions like, okay, well, what kind of restoration should be made to all the black people whose housing values are declined and have always been low because they themselves, black people, live in that house? You know, that's not yeah. a, an opinion. That's like, that's like applying his principle consistently in a legal context. Mm. But that, yeah, that, like, that, that kind of pushback <laughs> never happened. Like that, that, the teacher was very nice. She's a liberal. She's teaching poverty law, for Christ's sakes. You know, she was mm. lovely but she wasn't going to say that she wasn't equipped. She was flustered
6: and I said it. Mm -hmm. So it was
2: fine. But I I remember I literally thought by the end of law school, like they really need to be paying me a teacher's salary. Like I (laughs) do not owe this institution any loans, the level of education that I've been
6: um, putting out there
7: (laughs) for the last three years.
6: Hmm. It's kind of interesting actually, because the student, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, but the student who, um, you know, said that he didn't believe feminism was, you know, work his time by the end of semester, you know, when he came to thank me for the course also said, I'm now a feminist, mm-hmm. um, which was kind of like the best possible outcome from mm-hmm. that entire exchange. And like, mm-hmm. I'm not expecting that that happens at the end of these things. Like I, I, in fact, the opposite, I tend to expect that people's positions remain their positions
7: mm-hmm. at the end of
6: semester. But I was, I was kind of, I don't know, it was a very kind of humanity affirming thing for me. And it really drove home why, I think it's always better to insist that people defend even their "quote unquote" bad positions yeah. um, to the best of their ability, and that other people then, you know, engage with them rather than just being like, "No, no, no, we're not gonna, we're not gonna go there," because that's X or Y labeled person as a thing.
2: <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe the safe so space anyway, isn't yeah. shutting down that kind of conversation. What makes the space safe is knowing that people can participate in that 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 conversation and do so fruitfully in well, in a well-moderated way, but that we're going to have it.
6: Yes. And I think that's what he actually said to me. He's like, Mm. it was the only class where I felt like I wasn't being shut down for this because apparently it's really novel now for people to be able to um, say something that maybe the majority of their classmates disagree with. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, um, I don't know that, that part is disturbing to me. Like I really don't, think that anybody wins from telling people that their opinions are unacceptable opinions, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's That's, a true yeah. like disadvantage aspect to this as well. Like a lot of times, and I mean, I don't know. I don't want to, I'm just really wary of making sweeping generalizations here, but a lot of times that, you know, the young men in my classes who are doubtful of things like feminism, their only exposure to it has been through people yelling at them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, there is a class component a lot of times, and they just haven't been raised with this discourse, especially if they're from countries where this discourse literally doesn't exist, because mm. their day-to-day concerns are not the culture wars, mm-hmm. shocking <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. as it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, yeah, there's also that element that makes it even more Um, complicated and makes me feel like it's precisely because I have such diverse cohorts in every possible axis including gender and sexuality including where people are from etc and demographically that that I need to allow them to air their you know thoughts and like practice or rehearse um, you know articulating them or perhaps changing their minds if if that's where they go you know yeah um so anyway I'll, I'll leave it there thank you so much no for that, that was time. great
2: tammy thank you so much for calling in i'm really enjoying this i relate to joe rogan in one big way which is that i really do think it takes three hours to have a good conversation <laughs> um let's go with silver next what's on your mind silver you have to press the unmute button in the bottom right hand corner little microphone uh it's like a circle with a little U under it. I'm going to give this just a couple more seconds before I go to Terrence. Terrence, what's on your mind?
16: Hi, Brie. You hanging in there?
2: I'm hanging in there. How are you doing?
16: You, I'm doing fine. Your, your um, intellectual stamina for these uh, lengths of conversations always
2: uh, floors me. I can't believe it's been two and a half hours. You know, I was really going to keep it short today. But if I can be really honest, I'm secretly jealous of people who get to talk about culture wars all day because intellectually, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> I know nobody wants to hear that. And a lot of people in the Patreon are like, this is a waste of time. We need to be plotting the revolution. And I get that. <laughs> but I, I got to say, for me, just entertainment wise, I love puzzling over these questions of why we think why we what we think and are we being intellectually consistent and can creating consistency in the way that we are approaching these issues actually gain us integrity in the broader political fights that we're having. So what's on your mind though, Terrence, I've been talking enough.
16: Yeah, no, it's all good. So um, second time caller, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll try and uh, keep, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little story from my um, higher education experience and I'll try mm-hmm. and keep it as short as, as possible. So um, I went to um, uh, undergrad in 2006. So that's 16 years ago now. Um, I was studying international studies. Um, I found my, um, you know, sort of professors to be a little bit Eurocentric, a little bit, uh, neoliberal. Um, and, uh, so I was, I was just sort of found myself struggling with, um, the way that the material was being taught. And it felt like there was this orthodoxy, um, that I didn't find myself quite agreeing with. And, uh, then I went and studied abroad in Cameroon, uh, West Africa, and absolutely loved it and just changed my life and came back just an avowed you know anti-colonialist anti-imperialist um and uh so i had to write my thesis and so i sat down to to write uh sort of a, a a treatise if you will on basically like um integrating like, like modern political systems with pre-colonial systems of governance in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, the second I started talking with uh, my advisor, who was the only one who's available uh, to advise me, it became clear that he wasn't going to have anything to do. Like he, he would, he would take me as, you know, an advisee, but he wasn't going to have anything to do with, with um, what I had to say. Like it just, mm. it wasn't going to go over very well. And so I basically, just like started thinking um, maybe I'm just going to drop out of school. Like I, I, I don't, I don't see how, like the fact that there's, there's no way that I can present um, this perspective in this um, environment just makes me think maybe I'm just not cut out for an academic lifestyle and maybe Mm -hmm. I'll, you know, leave and uh, go back to, you know, go, go hang out in Uganda and, and, you know, help people there or something like that. Um, And basically my, my theories were proven correct. You know, I was, I was on track to be a uh, summa cum laude, but uh, you know, basically that was dashed by turning in this paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I guess long story short, I left acad- academia for a little while and then my career kind of drew me back in and I went uh, back to school uh, in linguistics um, uh, for two years I actually did it in a year and a half because I wanted to, you know, basically be able to afford it. And so I could do it, um, in a more accelerated way. And so I came to, to my advisor for that, uh, with, with a new kind of, um, uh, project and, uh, one that sort of bucked the orthodoxy because that was what I was interested in. And, um, he basically said like, we, we can't, we can't do this, um, this topic. You need to, you need to find something else. This is, this, this is too off the wall. Mm-hmm. And, um, basically I, I, came away just, I, I, it, I'd, I'd run through, um, my time there and hadn't figured out a new topic. And they basically told me like, okay, in order to finish this, you actually have to pay us more money, even though you've, you know, um, paid everything for, um, your course of study, um, in order to be able to finish your thesis and, and, and finish your degree. And I basically, I just dropped out. And um, so I think there is this sort of, uh, I I got the sense throughout my higher education experience that people, um, my peers were open to dialogue um, and to kind of wrestling with um, these issues, but it was the orthodoxy, the dogma, if you will, of the of the uh, departments that Mm -hmm. uh, was what I was running up against. And so I don't know that I have a question, but I- I... Yeah, no,
2: that is a very similar experience. And maybe one day she'll come on the podcast and talk about it that my mother had in her PhD program where she was in a psychology program where she was challenging what was then a lot of orthodoxy around uh, IQ tests and race. And this was around the time that Stephen Jay Gould was publishing you know, it was before Stephen Jay, who was publishing for the first time, debunking a lot of race science that existed up until then. But while she was in her program, her, you know, advisors basically told her that she was being self-interested as a black person and that nothing sh- none of her. You know, they basically thought she was just being biased um, and wouldn't take any of her work credibly, you know, wouldn't credit any of her work. And so she ended up not finishing her Ph.D., you know, we moved abroad and they were making it difficult for her to defend her dissertation. So she just said, screw it and never finished.
7: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and I've, I've heard a lot of stories like that in academia. And that is what's so funny about the push-pull of these conversations. You know, we talk about colleges as liberal bastions, but also they promulgate so much of the noxious uh, dogma around economics and, you know, Chicago school and all this malarkey. And they the departments themselves and the structure of the departments and the the tolerance of different kinds of thinking are, it's so narrow and it's like, feels so weird to be like, Having an argument with someone where we kind of are, con- you know, conceding that colleges are liberal when it's like in the back of my leftist brain, there's this huge caveat that's like, no, ultimately when it matters, when it comes to these systems and, you know, financial systems and legal systems, they are aggressively conservative. It's just these social issues, and are we all getting trapped up and even just talking about the social issues on campus when we really need to be talking about why every law student is still being marched into corporate law saying the, and, and being told the, the primary goal of the law is to protect shareholders and we shouldn't challenge that you know um but thank you for that and i think that's it's an important perspective that you're offering there
16: yeah no i, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you yeah and it's just it's 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 tricky i mean i basically had to reevaluate like um you know what what should my career be like i guess i'm clearly not an academic because um you know uh, folks won't have me uh finish my work. Um, And so, you know, what am I supposed to be now? (laughs) Well, I hope that
2: that's not that everyone who's good doesn't take themselves out of the running, but I I recognize that that's a a real challenge that we have to face. It's like all the people who should go into politics never do. Um, Let's hear from you next, Dee. You can unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hey, Brianna. Hey, Dee. What do you think about this evening?
17: I was just... Wondering, do you think that with the free speech stuff that sometimes the left focuses it focuses on it in a way that kind of empowers the right? Because I've just noticed that even in the criticisms of the kind of illiberal college campus, that there's not the same liberal ire towards like these draconian anti-CRT bills. Not from you, but I'm just saying from people in general.
6: So
2: you think there should be more pushback uh, on college campuses and among liberals to the CRT stuff, you're saying?
17: Yeah, because I just noticed that, like, on a lot of issues, I think the the, the left's focus, the main focus is on, like, why liberals are doing something incorrectly and kind Mm -hmm. of underestimating the threat from the right. You know, like I saw this with the, like... With, yeah, like with the free speech stuff, with cancel culture stuff, like if we're supposed to be a movement for for workers and people who have less money, then you would think that we would be, you know, calling out people who want to target like working class people such as teachers.
2: Yeah, it's difficult because there's one part of me that very much thinks that the CRT stuff, the culture war stuff is all a big trap. They want us talking about the green MMs shoes instead of – you know, substantive labor issues and Eminem having slaves and chocolate slaves and Hershey or whatever having chocolate slaves in South America or whatever. Um, it, you know, and the other part of me says, I guess I, I would agree that there is a response, but the response should be not what liber- how liberals respond. Like, I, I hear you that it seems like all we do is criticize liberals, but it's, I am not saying that we should like be mum on the issue of the CRT, but I think you have to say they are bringing this up, you know, give your pro forma response. Of course, I think that educational decisions should be made, you know, by, you know, you know, locally or whatever, and then pivot too. But the reason that they're bringing this up is not because they have some deep invested about whether or not there's like a blow job in this Judy Bloom book. It's really about, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then point to those systemic issues. And I do think that you, you, the way not to get trapped in this stuff And the way not to get trapped in the did you beat your wife question is to really like connect the reason why they're asking why you beat your wife to the issue that they're really trying to avoid.
17: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and and to be to be honest, I'm not talking about you, but I'm just there. There is a strain where it it seems like that way. and, And I have no problem criticizing like people who I think do harm the left, liberals who do harm like discourse. But, you know, as long as there's not an elevation of the right as if like their free speech, as if they have free speech principles when I don't see that at all. I see a group of people who would very gladly quash free speech. And so it's just a theme I see from everything from free speech to even like the uh, trucker convoy where yes, Mm -hmm. we should support them. But also know that the people who are supporting you, the trucker convoy with you, will would very gra- gladly use the government to quash any protesters, as if, yeah. as we saw with
9: BLM.
2: Yeah, I think that is so. I mean, I think I would. I fantasize about the idea of leftists going and making that exact pitch to those truckers. I, I, the cynical part of my brain thinks that sometimes liberals don't land that counter punch because they know that they're not. They're not sincerely committed to the speech issue either. Like you don't, you're not going to be an evangelist, you know, with with Julian Assange being there and ignored, you know, with all of the things that are going on, they know they don't want to fully commit to that because they're not going to do it either. Like there's a world where, you know, Joe Biden during the 2020 race could be making this really compelling case against Trump by talking about corruption, talking about how we spend too much on healthcare, all of the things he could be talking about, but he doesn't do it because he doesn't believe in those things. Like he's also corrupt, right? Like, and so I think that's a little bit of what happens with liberals is that the left makes stronger counter arguments because it is ideologically committed to what the liberal liberals aren't. They just want to have a nicer version of what the Republicans are saying and will weaponize and exploit any argument in their favor in a way that seems empty and shallow, but maybe that's unfair. I don't know. Maybe this I'm being
6: too dark. (laughs)
2: My, my my theory is that we should always talk as so though everyone doesn't agree with you, except it's completely fair to drag liberals. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying. Um, let's hear from Jonathan. How are you doing, Jonathan? I know you know how this works, Jonathan. You know, mute yourself for me. I see you tweeting, there like you I go. know you're engaged. There you go. <laughs> how are you doing, Jonathan?
18: There we go. Like, I was originally going to say something along the lines of the, uh, uh, you know, the comment I left on the Patreon page under the audio section. But, I mean, this conversation's gone in so many interesting directions, and I kind of wanted to drill down on something you said to the other Jonathan, uh, which was your your kind of, uh, your experience getting kind of uh, exercised in your, your discussions with your friend back in the day, uh, you know, your more conservative friend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's uh, there's a lot that's been said about, you know, the uh, psychology of being ostracized, but not a not a whole lot in this discussion about the psychology of the ostracizers. Mm. And that's important, too. And when people are experiencing this, it's experiencing this kind of strong cascade of emotions. It crowds out their their ability for cognition. I think people are seeing that same kind of, uh, you know, that same kind of thing when they're arguing with family members at Thanksgiving, uh, you know, the same kind of psychology also applies to people in, uh, you know, that are strongly religious, that feel like somebody has blaspheme, uh, yeah. you know, the same kind of strong autonomic arousal and, uh, you know, powerful emotions like that crowd out people's ability to think clearly. Uh, it can be very intoxicating and it can be very contagious. Mm. And, you know, I do think that um, this kind of, uh endorphin rush that comes from um you know ostracizing the transgressor um is you know is very much present in uh, a lot of these uh these kinds of situations you've been discussing so it's like you said in the podcast there is a there there Mm. uh i think that's what we're sensing and i think that's you know when you see these kinds of situations arising where they you have these kind of um unreasonable mobs that seem so similar to the mobs you see on on Twitter when they come for you when you say something they consider wrong and their criticisms are not reasonable they seem completely um, you know blindly uh, you know just uh, you know beyond reason um, that's a thing and it can happen to even completely rational people in other circumstances and you know mm-hmm. it's it's not real easy to pinpoint where it's coming from or why it seems to be uh, more prevalent on, you know, in college campuses these days. But I think, you know, part of the reason for that is it's coming from multiple directions and, and forces converging. So, you know, the things Catherine Lou said were correct. The things that that uh, you know the the young lady on the podcast said. They're there. It's it's just difficult to see what direction they're all coming from and what's what's causing it. So and, you know, I, I think it's worth going down. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry.
2: It's interesting the social media piece is also that, like, you can find a Greek course like because of social media, you can find people who are supportive and backing you up now, no matter what. So it's like simultaneously people feeling perhaps that extra confidence to say their piece because they've got supporters. If they know there's a faction that's got their back, there's a community everywhere where everyone's talking like everybody agrees. You know what I mean? Everyone has a place where everyone agrees with them. You can find it online. But also, so you get all this confidence to say the thing, but then in real life – you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's almost it's not self-censorship. It's like everyone's actually communicating more openly than they were before because they're being egged on by these, like, virtual communities. But now they're, like, dealing with the consequences of it. And there's this, not, there's this mix of opinions. And people don't have the resilience to deal with it. And there is, to your point about the social psychology of people who are in the mob. I mean, I was in the mob. Like, I was trying to shame my friends. You know, I, I I could not understand why this guy from New York also was kind of new to the world and young, but like, I I did not, I could not understand how this guy from New York could have the positions that he held and be my friend and be so nice and like, more like he was like probably the first conservative I really knew. And he was so smart. You know, he could argue me down. He was so smart. We ended up at law school together and he went on to clerk for Alito, (laughs) you know, and he, he really knew his stuff. And he was also the most patient, kind, sensitive, sweet guy. Like. To date, than I know, and it was it really made me my friendship with him really made me have to think hard about what matters and like am I the villain? Like am I the villain saying all this, these horrible things and screaming at this guy who's like really actually been quite patient with me? At the time, I experienced his patience as him not having skin in the game and having this kind of aloof, patronizing, paternalistic attitude toward me. And maybe some of that was true, but maybe some of it was just that I was I was. I don't know, not engaging in the most productive way. And what's really, what was really, you know, crazy about it is that when we were fighting over Obama in 2008, it was all over email. And so I have all of these emails. I really like, I can go back and look at the things I was saying exactly how I said them. And I, what, what is clear is that I refuse to take his arguments in good faith. We were arguing, remember when Geraldine Ferraro um, said the thing about how Barack Obama is advantaged by being black? Um, she was with team Hillary and he, she was like, you know, he's lucky he's black. Like this is a real boon for him. And we were fighting about that. Uh, and he was like, he was like, he, he agreed with Jordan Ferraro. And I was like, she's a dumb C-U-N-T. <laughs> um, and now I look back and I, I understand the point that, Will was making, that at the same point we kind of make a lot about identity politics now is that there's an extent to which, even though racism is real and there are a lot of people who don't like Obama because he's black, there, he is shielded from certain kinds of critiques because he is black and that it's a mixed bag um, but I still don't agree with what he was saying because, you know, the same goes for Hillary and being a woman and there's personality and there's ability and there's other things that are in the picture, but you know, I, 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 I refuse to believe, like I was my response is to my friend were kind of predicated on the idea that he did not understand racism or was not acknowledging the relevance or sin of racism. And that Obama was the victim of racism also. And that the turban stuff and all of the Somali garb and all of the things were also racism. And I was, I put my, my arguments were not nuanced and they were also like my, my rigidity made me unable to hear my friend.
18: I know, I know that feeling well because I come from a family full of Republicans. Mm in fact, I'm the only like they all call me the Commie. Uh, mm-hmm. I actually found out much to my delight uh, three days communist. ago. That, that's what my mom thinks, but you know, it, I'm left. I I wouldn't call like I've never read the Communist Manifesto, but I just found out three days ago my mom did. Mm. But uh, that was that was a long time ago. But in any case, like I I had to I had to make some adjustments to my way of thinking uh for the simple reason that i knew my parents and my family members you know my siblings to be fundamentally good people like my mm. dad says this right wing nutty stuff that uh i had found really offensive it made me bristle mm. but uh this is the same guy who all a homeless person has to do is say the magic words i'm hungry mm. and he will stop whatever he's doing and make sure that that person has a feast, even if the nearest restaurant is, like, some super expensive place. Mm. Uh, he cannot stand to see anybody going hungry. Mm. Uh, like, this is a, like, this is a genuinely good person. He's a doctor. His patients love him. Mm. And, you know, he's, he's just a – like, he is a good guy. He just – there seems to be such a disconnect. And that's one of the things that kind of drove me to start, um, you know, studying up on the psychology to figure out how – where that contradiction comes from. And there's a certain degree to which that situation you were in was not entirely your fault. Like it's it, uh, there is a, like this network of, um, of classical or Pavlovian conditioning that we all have like instilled into us all over the place where these strong, powerful emotions are are conditioned in by repetition, by the use of certain frames and there are just certain things that get us, you know, triggered, if you will, or or exercise where, you know, they trigger a strong emotional response to where we are then unable to hear what the other person is saying until it passes. Mm-hmm. And you even see that mentioned in like the in the cult deprogramming literature. I guess they call themselves exit counselors now, mm. but, uh, you know, they essentially say. You know, you have to avoid stepping on these kind of verbal landmines, and that's why they say it's important to study up on the, on the cult's theology before you try to approach this, because if you mm-hmm. step on one of those landmines, there's nothing to do until, you know, you wait for that whole, like, autonomic arousal situation to pass, to wait for that emotion to uh drain out of them although yeah. I, i've to
2: seen be communications
7: that's not entirely the case will yeah, i mean sorry ahead.
2: my to be clear my friend he was not perfect either i'm not saying he was entirely right and <laughs> these in, in these no, debates the points not. he was making but yeah I, I think that all of that is really um important perspective but i also do want to make room for this idea that like and my mom and i talk about this a lot it is it is true that if you are not from the marginalized group like you are gonna be more triggered if you if you really feel like you have skin in the game. And there is something that sometimes feels unfair about you know, you I know you've been arguing with someone. You argued probably with a partner or something in your life and you're really upset about something and they're like, well just calm down. Stop yelling. And it's like you know, it's like you don't care because you're an idiot who doesn't get why this is wrong. <laughs> you know?
18: like, oh yes, all the I'm time. Yelling all this the is, time. This,
2: this, the issue merits my it merits me being emotional. Like we're talking about life or death stuff. We're talking about healthcare. We're talking about you know what I mean. And I am not entirely sure where I land on, you know, the goodness or badness of this. I I believe that it's not it is often not productive.
6: Um, yes. Sometimes
2: it is productive. Definitely. Sometimes Nina Turner is on the stage and vying against the pharmaceutical industry and it so stirs your soul and makes you donate. And like that, the job gets done, you know?
18: Yeah. That's a contagion part of it. That act, that absolutely is a thing, but you know, there's a time and a place where it's more productive than others. And, you know, sometimes you, it, it, uh, it helps firstly not to, uh, you know, blame yourself. If sometimes you, you, uh, step on one of your own landmines by surprise, uh, because you, you're right. Sometimes there is, uh, you know, perfectly good reason to be, you know, a little exercised. But uh, on the other hand, sometimes if you're trying to be productive, like you were in your job, and you were very good at, uh, you know, maintaining uh, a very strict discipline on yourself. Like people were horrible to you, and you always stayed calm. You always stayed dignified. You always kept an even tone of voice.
0: Sometimes,
18: and, most, you know that's
2: th- not always.
0: But I mean. <laughs>
18: When it when it counted, you did, and like that, like that was an impressive level of self discipline. If you're trying to be productive in that way and actually persuade people, um, yeah, it, you know, it's because I think a lot of people in these kind of Twitter situations, like uh, when they're going back and forth, are basically stepping on each other's landmines, and you know, there's nothing good that's going to come of that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that that point about landmines is really. A good one and also your point about your dad being a good person look when i part of why i couldn't handle the conversations with my friend who we were like freshmen in college is because i truly had not really experienced what it meant for someone to disagree with me so much and also for them to be a good person i didn't really think that that was possible and you hear activists you know people who use this kind of language black bodies like you hear them say things all the time like you can't be a good person if you don't respect my personhood. Um, you, if you if you don't support the right to choose, you cannot be a good person because you are violating my autonomy as a human being, and you think that I'm chattel and an animal that you have rights to control. And I don't even necessarily disagree with that characterization, but my lived experience now, as a you know almost forty year old woman, just I don't. It's dissonant for me. I have met too many people. Who I respect and who have shown me kindness and decency, despite also maybe being a racist, being a sexist like those things are, can be coterminous. And I, sometimes I feel like it's, it's not even about them and their humanity, but it's about my humanity. If, my human, if I can't recognize their humanity in me, if I can't respond to the humanity in them, then that diminishes me on some level. It makes me a cruel person to respond to my friend's kindness and generosity with some spiteful comment because I didn't like what he said to me in 2008, you know? And this is why, to bring this full circle, (laughs) I like the movie Crash. (laughs) (laughs) Because Crash is all about how, like, life is complicated. And literally in the movie, it's like the guy who, like, digitally rapes. Tandy Newton saves her life at the end. And maybe you think that's hokey and overly simplistic, but every character in that movie is painted as a villain in some circumstances and like a hero in other circumstances. And that is closer to the reality of life than we would like to say it is. And perhaps we get more traction with a movement like Black Lives Matter if we wrestled with some of those tensions and, you know, like brought like Black cops, maybe I'll get canceled for this, Black cops into the conversation and talks about like, you know, what does you know, you know, you know, defunding and channeling you into what, what are you, what is your new job? Like, can you offer your own critiques of the police department? How would you like to see your job different, go differently? Like, instead of this kind of like a narrative that may or may not, you know, like I get why people who are victimized by the police would want to go there. And I'm not telling anybody what to say or how to go about their activism, but I do wrestle with these kinds of questions all the time. And to that end, I and um, Josh from the West Wing thing are going to be talking about Crash uh, on Friday the 18th on a call in at 5 p.m. So I'm going to go ahead and schedule that after I end this call. And you guys should all put it in your calendars because we are both going to be rewatching the movie. Rewatch the movie. So you're prepared to talk about the 2005 classic.
18: I will. And like, honestly, like that's what you're describing is the milieu in which I grew up. And that's a big part of why your approach resonates so much with me, Mm -hmm. because that complexity is very real. That duality is very real. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the most important thing is when you have these kinds of disagreements, like you were saying earlier, to have a good faith conversation about it and actually listen and exchange and, you know, keep that even keel. And sometimes you can reach a real understanding, even if you don't reach an agreement. Yeah,
2: 100 percent. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for always. You always give Write such thoughtful comments on Twitter and on the Patreon and I and I appreciate them, and I see them even if I don't always engage because my fees get hurt too easily these days. <laughs> um, thank you, Jonathan. I'm gonna wrap it here because we're a little over. Yeah, of course, we're a little over three hours. I appreciate all of you for hanging in there. There were so many good moments of this that I really do hope some of you go back through and clip sections so that I can push them to social media and let people know what we've been up to here. As a reminder, when you clip the segment, you can download it and it will become an audiogram, like a red video that will transcribe the text at the bottom that you can play, which is going to be much more likely, you know, it gets people to click on it more than just like the link. You can, you know, obviously just push the link to social, but if you download it to your phone, you can then post the like video of the conversation clip. So I recommend people do that. But if you just clip it, I will do that. You don't need to like do that for my sake. I appreciate everyone who's been retweeting and sharing this as we've been talking today. I've been retweeting your tweets that you're listening to this show. If you want to do that, it also is helpful to editorialize a little and not just do the prompt that fills in. If you say, hey, Brianna right now is talking about this or so-and-so, the speaker just said this and it was really insightful or summarize or quote somebody, that helps people want to click on it and tune in. And I really think that they should because honestly... You know, this is one of the best conversations I've ever heard about cancel culture. I'm biased, but I think it was. And it's because of you guys. And I'm so grateful that you have whatever brainworm that I have that makes turning these issues over and over and over again for three hours at nine o'clock, ten, eleven o'clock on a Thursday, as appealing as it is for me. So I love you weirdos. Never change. I forgot to pull up outro music. So let's go with... Um, I've done this before, but it's just so good. Like, who's going to be mad at me using this song again? Um, Take care of yourselves. And as always, keep the faith.
7: Good morning, friends. Here's your friendly announcer. I have serious news to pass on
2: to everybody day to interrupt this just to also remind folks that this podcast is now on Spotify too. So if you want to share it with your friends who don't have the app, you can just share the po- Spotify Wouldn't like a normal podcast. And- All right. To and it's that
7: love in
10: me of love today.
2: In, yours in right way. All right, well, there is a thing. Hey, I'm
7: waking Stop please, before
10: it's gone too
7: far. Mm-hmm. force of evil plan To make you its possession